We're back with you here at Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. Thank you for joining us again. As you know, we are now in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Last week, we went ahead and gave you part one, which was chapters one through six. This week, we're coming at you at chapters seven through 12. Really excited to be here today. This is some really big stuff coming up. There's a lot of things that happen here. I'm not going to give too much away right now, but uh, there's an accusation that happens in the very first chapter that we'll talk about today in chapter seven that plays a big role going on. We get to see about those private lessons Dumbledore was talking about. We see the staff appointments for Hogwarts, like who's in what positions. Like we got a lot of stuff going on. We get uh, an attack on a student. Like there's a lot of great stuff coming up today that you guys are going to be really excited to uh, jump into with us. Um, before I do that, I want to give, give the floor over to Chase to uh, talk a little bit, a little about interesting facts that uh, he'll release last week Wednesday and what he'll release uh, this following Wednesday as well. So Chase, go ahead and let him know what you're going to be tackling and that neck of the woods yeah uh pretty good episodes you know it was kind of we had that week reprieve there from where we did the differences episode because you know we don't do mainly based on the books so we're not going to be doing interesting facts and hitting you with all that that's a lot to take in after we're closing out on massive chapters right so it gives you a little bit of a break um we hit him with a lot of information as far as like uh spinners end and and that sort of stuff a lot of history on uh there was a few different people that you know they've mentioned in passing every now and then and then of course your boys fred and george i uh, did put a few different things on there as far as like creating your own uh different like fred and george treats and that sort of stuff that were pretty cool um but the biggest thing is it was more on like the history of kind of snippet uh spinners end with the snapes because you don't hear a lot about the snapes family history like you hear the lestranges or you hear the blacks like we talked about the black family tapestry so that was cool and then uh coming up there will be a couple different things you know we don't want to give anything away like i think today we end on a really big one um which is actually, it's funny, like, one of the interesting facts today, I've been saving, you know, for a really long time. That's what I was going to say, man. You've been sitting on that one for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> minute, man. This have blood print stuff. It's like, it, it, like, shows up super early on and then just lingers, and now it's finally here, and <laughs> yeah, man, we're just going to take it away. But it'll be a good one. It'll be a good episode, um, and, you know, we'll be hitting those interesting facts, and uh, pretty much every week all the way until we still got another what three weeks or so probably this three weeks yeah the differences i think yeah like no, th- three weeks right because uh let's see this is part two so we gotta do part three part four part five or six so four weeks four weeks for the book uh, details and then the extra week for the differences so yeah four weeks uh still remain for us to knock the rest of Half-Blood Prince out, and then we'll do the differences, and then we'll be on to the last book, and that's going to be wild, man. <laughs> that's wild. It's wild to even think we're already this We're approaching far. it. Yeah, we are surely approaching it. That's. I'm excited, though. I'm really happy to <laughs> kind of, you know, we're working our way through it, because, like, it's tough, guys, especially, you know, when, when we do stuff in this detail, you start to realize how, like, a passion kind of becomes, uh, like, uh it drives you insane a little bit because you want to make sure you do such a good job that the thing that brought you so much joy can sometimes be like a bit of a burden, like she's, you know, <laughs> you know, we talked about it last week, you know, just 
there's been very few pages where we, we just read it without taking at least one note on it. And you think about all yeah. the pages that we cover, you know, especially six chapters at a time, generally speaking, and all that is. So it's like, you know, I, I love Harry Potter. I love going through it. I love presenting the content. But I'm not going to sit here and pretend I'm not going to be happy for a break from it once we finally get through it. I'll, I'll be honest, man. <laughs> yeah, man. It's Just to put this in perspective for the audience, if y'all aren't thinking about it, currently, guys, we have more Harry Potter episodes than we have Game of Thrones, yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. And we're yeah, all we still got a lot to go. Season. <laughs> still got yeah. a ton of more to go. Long way to have. go. We're still on the up and up, and uh, yeah, but no, you you hit that nail on the head. I mean, we can't tell you guys the countless nights. Uh, this has been a juggernaut on its own. Of, I mean, there's been times I really thought like it's gonna, like it'll affect your health if you don't take care of yourself. It really will. The draining nights and the information is. It's not like it's even easy to find. Like, we have to go through the books and everything. We're not just watching movies. You know, we'll spend 10 minutes on a movie and we'll be like, yeah, that was cool. But, like, <laughs> if you really, yeah, you want the detail and you want the real stuff that people can't find. With that being said, um, we were talking about a little bit last week as far as Slughorn just kind of being not like a sleazy guy, but a little bit pompous and that sort of thing. Well, we're really going to start diving into, uh, his little posse, I guess you would call. So, like, last book, we had the inquisitorial squad that Umbridge put together. He's not as bad. Like, he's not, like, a bad guy. But he's definitely kind of putting together his, like, uh, his crew. Like, loving the crew. <laughs> <laughs> That's a throwback for you. With that, I'll let uh, Jay Nelly take us away, man. Yeah, definitely. To kind of piggyback off you in terms of going through the, a recap of last week... A lot of what we covered, we covered in the first chapter about the other prime minister, talking about the Muggle prime minister and how the worlds have started to kind of connect in terms of the bad things happening throughout. It's, it's not just affecting the wizarding world, it's affecting the Muggle world. From there we go into Spinner's End where we uh, learn a little bit about Snape, which is surprising. You know, he hits us with uh, some devious stuff. We weren't, you know, you might not have been expecting that and all of a sudden, you know, we got, we kind of find out Snape has been playing Dumbledore dirty according to that chapter and then going into chapter three Dumbledore takes uh Harry away from the Dursleys kind of gives the Dursleys a little piece of his mind and then going into uh, chapter four that's where we meet or Slughorn trying to convince him to come out of retirement they do their job he's going to come back and teach at Hogwarts we go back over to the borough you know and then in chapter five we get to meet uh Fleur Delacour now as an engaged member of the Weasley family she's engaged to Bill Weasley uh, from there we go into uh, chapter 6, which is Draco's Detour, where we found him go into Borgen and Burks and talk about two important uh, artifacts, and that's going to play a big role later on. And that's kind of where we left it off. Now, coming in today, in chapter 7, the Slug Club, as Chase is right, this is where we kind of get introduced to the first people Professor Slughorn kind of introduces himself to. Because remember from him, he likes to make friends with people he thinks are, are going to become important or who are relatives of people who are already important. And so right. then they obviously they'll start adding pieces here and there. And so this is going to be a little interesting to see uh, see where he goes with it. So Chase, like we always do around here, let's get a little malice and the chalice going. And I'll I'll dive into this uh, chapter 7 here and uh, take a couple points and pass it over to you. And we'll just get this thing rolling. Malice and the chalice, man. Let's Cheers, get it going. Cheers, brother. Yeah. <sighs> 
You got it. Filthy little half blood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's Good do stuff. this thing, man. All right. Man. So, in page 129, what I got really like, more of a bullet point more than I'm going to read anything. It's more of a the build up of what Malfoy's task is. Like they are starting to like kind of break it down. Harry, Ron, and Hermione are like Harry's very adamant about what he believes, and and here's the foreshadow. Is the next page on page 130. Harry thinks he's onto something, and you know Ron and Hermione don't really jump on board with it. But he actually this this big foreshadow. Harry tells Ron and Hermione he thinks Malfoy has now taken his dad's place as a Death Eater, and now that's yeah. good. That's a really big uh, you know accusation. And I guess we'll we'll find out later on in the book if it comes to be true or not, or if Harry was just paranoid. So definitely something that does uh, play a part <laughs> later. So. <laughs> <laughs> and on uh, page 130, I'll go ahead and read a, a couple paragraphs here. So we're going to start with, He's a Death Eater, said Harry slowly. He's replaced his father as a Death Eater. There was a silence, then Ron, Ron erupted in laughter. Malfoy? He's 16, Harry. You think you know who would let Malfoy join? It seems very unlikely, Harry, said Hermione in a repressive sort of voice. What makes you think? And Madame Malkins, she didn't touch him. But he yelled and jerked his arm away from her when she went to roll up his sleeve. It was his left arm. He's been branded with a dark mark. Ron and Hermione both looked at each other. Well, he said Ron, sounding thoroughly unconvinced. I think he just wanted to get out of there, Harry, said Hermione. He showed Borgen something we couldn't see. Harry pressed on stubbornly. Something that seriously scared Borgen. It was the mark. I know it. He was showing Borgen who he was dealing with. And you saw how seriously Borgen took him. So that, that's a little like excerpt I wanted to read right there because that's super important and plays a, a big deal later on. Now, and I, th- I thought this was cool too, moving on to page 132. In all the books up to this point, talking about Sorcerer's Stone, Chamber of Secrets, Azkaban, Goblet of Fire, and Order of Phoenix, there's always been like a last minute scramble where like to get to like the King's Cross station, there's always been like there's never like smooth, yeah. <laughs> never like a really smooth thing. Like they never all trunks are already packed, they're ready to go, they got plenty of time. Like this is the very first time where everything goes really smoothly. Like they all get there on time, they get through. Mrs. Weasley's <laughs> kind of freaking out because she's not used to having so much time to deal. with. She's like, ah, I don't even know what to do. So <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. And then on, through pages one thirty four, one thirty five, Harry tells Arthur of his Malfoy suspicions, and Arthur basically dismisses him. And he's like, well, yeah, maybe Harry. Maybe we missed something the last time we checked their house. But it does come up again because they do a second raid on, based on Harry's information, which we'll actually talk about later on in this episode. But those are the, the big main five points I want to start with, and I'll turn it over to Chase to take us away from page 136. Yeah, man. No, it was great. And uh, just one thing I wanted to bring up about that. Remember, Arthur was like, is this why y'all disappeared? <laughs> he wasn't exactly happy about it either. And uh, yeah. I think that's the first time you really kind of seen Arthur stern with Harry. Like, he'll do it with his kids, but, like, at the same time, I he really looks at Harry like a son now. And I'm sure he was thinking, you know, you just got out of the last hearing. <laughs> you really want to get dragged into another? Um, but so the next thing I have from here is... Uh, the next thing I have from here isn't... As much as important, uh, just kind of a new person, I guess. That is how we get kind of into this group. Uh, Romilda Vane introduces herself to Harry. Kind of comes out of nowhere. Um, yeah, and she goes, why don't you come join us in our compartment? <laughs> I was like, oh, nice. 
kind of reminded me of Sorcerer's Stone when, like, <laughs> I guess they just kind of had their place to the side. But I guess, you know, she was down for it. And um, remember, as far as, I guess, you remember, it kind of made me think, like, I guess this is, like, the odd group <laughs> kind of because then you had luna that's over near that way and she's like are you all right harry you look funny <laughs> and then uh there luna was like well that was neville he's like you all right you look funny and then luna said it must be a rack spurt that has you uh but that'll go into interesting facts on wednesdays what that is and you know the list no uh, not the illustrations. the love goods had their own beliefs that it comes straight out of the quibbler there so just an interesting kind of fact there. Um, and it says like Luna, right? So like they had passed. Um, so it says here, like she was actually teaching uh, domicles, I guess is what they're called. D-O-M-O-C-L-E-S. It says, uh, I was just telling a young Morius that I had the pleasure of teaching his young Domicles, which I guess that was his brother. This is when Slughorn is going to start getting into this group here. But basically, like, typical Slughorn, right, as we were talking about, he is picking these people, like, based on that line there, like, he taught basically his younger brother of people he thinks are going to have a great reputation and who's going to be successful. And he's already trying to make this about him, and he's been out of this whole scene for years now like no one remembers who he is this is like a brand new generation um and i'll let you take it from there but basically he's getting these groups of kids on the bus and it's almost like he's gonna establish his own like party meeting group here with the newcomers of hogwarts um one that'll be talked about a good bit uh that harry kind of gets into some beef with later on um, but yeah, it this if actually I'll tell you what. So one forty four to one forty eight. Do you have anything in between there? Yeah, I've got I gotta catch up with you a little bit because I'm still I got some things from one thirty six through one forty four where you're where you're starting now that I want to definitely okay. touch on. Um, the the first thing here is like when they first get on the the Hogwarts Express. This is kind of a bit of a foreshadow, but Harry feels a twinge of annoyance when he asks Ginny to share a compartment with him, and she tells him that she's actually meeting up with her boyfriend Dean. So yeah. he says he felt it. So I thought that was a big foreshadow to kind of mention. Page 137, Harry finds seats with Neville and Luna. We learn that Neville has a new wand, which is pretty cool. Because remember, his got snapped in the yeah, Department of Mysteries. Right, okay. uh, yeah, he had like the He has a cherry wood wand with a unicorn hair as the core. And he mm -hmm. thinks it was one of the last that Ollivander ever sold because Ollivander vanished the next day after he sold Neville that wand. So that was pretty important. Um, yeah. When you were talking about uh, Hi, Harry, I'm Ramilda Vane. I want, I want to go ahead and, and read a little bit into that. Uh, Hi, Harry. I'm Ramil Devane, uh, she said loudly and confidently. Why don't you join us in our compartment? You don't have to sit with them, she added in a stage whisper, indicating Neville's bottom, which was sticking out from under the seat, again as he groped around for Trevor and Luna, who was now wearing her free Spectra Specs, which gave her the look of a uh, demented, multicolored owl. They're friends of mine, said Harry coldly. Oh, said the girl, looking very surprised. Oh, okay. And she withdrew and slid the door closed behind her. People expect you to have cooler friends than us, said Luna, once again displaying her knack for embarrassing honesty. You are cool, said Harry shortly. None of them were at the ministry. They didn't fight with me. That's a very nice thing to say, beamed Luna. Then she pushed her specs further up her nose and settled down to read the quibbler. 
We didn't face him, though, said Neville, emerging under the seat with fluff and dust in his hair and a resigned-looking Trevor in his hand. You did. You should hear the way my grand talks about you. That Harry Potter's got more backbone than the whole Ministry of Magic put together. She'd give anything to have you as a grandson. So I just had some important stuff in there, because, like, when you were talking about Ramilda Vane, it was more like she was kind of being a, a bitch in a way. Like, oh, these are your yeah. friends? No, you can come sit with us. We're cooler. Like, Harry's like, no, like, these guys were there and faced Death Eaters with me. You can go fuck <laughs> off. Like, you, right, can go, yeah. like, you get the heck out of here. Exactly. <laughs> And then no, um, I agree with that a hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was. That's why I was like hesitant on it because it's like it's a weird group. It's like they're trying to be the shit, but like, how can you be the shit when you haven't even gone there yet? And like, like they're only in their understand. fourth year. Like they're, they're the Mermilda and her friends were only fourth years. Like they like yeah. That just thought was funny. And then um, and page one thirty nine here. I thought this was pretty important because it talks about how Neville could have been the one. Uh, Voldemort chose to be like you know his uh, his rival or whatever with through the prophecy. So I'm mm-hmm. gonna read uh, this part in 139. So Neville's childhood had been blighted by Voldemort just as much as Harry's had, but Neville had no idea how close he had come to having Harry's destiny. The prophecy could have referred to either of them. Yet for his own unscutable reasons, Voldemort had chosen to believe that Harry was the one it meant. Had Voldemort chosen Neville, it would be Neville sitting opposite Harry, bearing the lightning-shaped scar and the weight of the prophecy, or would it? Would Neville's mother have died to save him as Lily had died for Harley? Well, surely she would. But what if she had been unable to stand between her son and Voldemort? Would there have been no chosen one at all? An empty seat where Neville now sat and a scarless Harry who'd have been kissed goodbye by his own mother and not Ron's? So I thought uh, that was something that was pretty important that I wanted to really reach out and talk about there. And then we kind of start getting into the Slughorn thing. Because remember, Ron and Hermione, they were on prefect duty, so they couldn't sit in the compartment. Well, they finally come back. Neville get, or, um, Harry, gets, Harry and Neville actually get a letter from Slughorn. And the letter just reads, Harry, I would be delighted if you would join me for a bite of lunch in compartment C. Professor, you know, <laughs> H-E-F Slughorn. There's a lot of initials there, just like Dumbledore, I guess. But uh, anyways, they end up going there. And then... Just before you, you go ahead and retake this from me, I wanted to go ahead and talk about the actual... I'm just going to name the members of who he invited. But before you <laughs> even get there, he was walking down there to the the meeting or the luncheon or whatever you want to call it on the compartment uh-huh. of the train. And he actually passed by Cho Chang, who, was like, uh, in, who darted into her compartment when she saw Harry coming. And as Harry passed the window, he saw her deep and determined conversation with her friend Marietta who was wearing a very thick layer of makeup that did not entirely obscure the odd formation of pimples still etched across her face. So this girl, Marietta, remember the, like, the sneak pimples from when yeah. she gave up the DA? She still hasn't gotten that fully gone. It's been almost a year. Isn't that crazy? Hermione's jinx really messed her up. Well, you shouldn't have been crazy, you man. shouldn't have been snitching, baby. You shouldn't have been snitching. So snitches get stitches. Yeah, snitches <laughs> get pimples in this in this one, I guess. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so anyways, everyone that was that was invited to Slughorn's little get together. Uh, Blaze Zabini, Cormac McLagan, and he actually plays a role later on in terms of Quidditch tryouts. I won't get too much into that. Harry Neville, Marcus Belby. And Ginny, those were the people who were invited to this little shindig. And so with that, I'll, I'll let you go ahead and continue on now that we're kind of caught up. There were just those points I really wanted to throw in there because I thought they were important. No, definitely important. Um, it reminded me of, though, like, have you ever seen The Office or uh, Community is great. Like, it's like 
<laughs> he is. He really is Pierce. If you've ever seen Community, like he's trying to start his own events, but they're not with people that anyone like because they're just like rude, obnoxious people that think they're the shit. And then remember, he like tries to promote it, and like no one keeps going, which is later on. But just to kind of get into this, uh, establishing the group here. So the reason I brought up uh, Domicles is because this is how it leads in because it actually starts off. And it goes to show, like, just like Josh Souts, you know, he's picking people based on, like, his predictions here and people he used to know. So on 144, it says, I was just telling young Marcus here that I had the pleasure of teaching his uncle Domicles, Slughorn told Harry and Neville, now passing around a basket of rolls. Outstanding, wizard. Outstanding. And his order of Merlin, most well-deserved. Do you see much of your uncle, Marcus? Unfortunately, Belby had just taken a large mouthful of pheasant. In his haste, no answer. Slughorn, he swallowed too fast and turned purple and began to choke. In a pinyo, said Slughorn calmly, pointing his wand at Belby, whose airway seemed to clear at once. Not, not much of him, no, gasped Belby, his eyes streaming. Well, of course I dare say he's busy said Slunghorn, looking questioningly at Belby. I doubt he invented the Wolfsbane potion without considerable hard work. I suppose, said Belby, who seemed afraid to take another bite of pheasant until he was sure Slughorn had finished with him. Er, he and my dad don't get on very well, you see, so I, I don't really know much about that. His voice tailed away as... Lughorn gave him a cold smile and turned to <laughs> McLaggen. Is that that McLaggen? Our uh, yes. famous Jameis over here that's going <laughs> to play a role later on uh, instead. Now you, Cormac, said Slughorn, I happen to know you see a lot of your Uncle Tiberius because he has a rather splendid picture of you two with your hunting nogtails and I think uh, Norfolk. Oh yeah, that was that was fun," <laughs> said McLagan. We went uh, with Bertie Higgs and Rufus Scrimmageor. This was before he became minister, obviously. Ah, you know Bertie and Rufus too. Mmm. <laughs> Beam Slughorn now offering around a small tray of pi- pies. Somehow Belby was most missed out. Now tell me. It was as Harry had expected. Everyone here seemed to have been invited because they. Were I just want to stop there for a quick second because that makes it really, yeah. really funny. When you just said that, uh, like, uh, Belby was missed this time around with the thing. It's like because he didn't know the important person in his family. Now Slug- <laughs> Slughorn had no had no time for him. Like he like he let's say yeah the cold gave him a cold smile. Then when they passed around like the new tray, like they missed Belby because like he's like oh, no no you're out now. <laughs> He screwed it. You should have said you knew all about Uncle Domocles. Well, guess what? Now you're out of the club, baby. You're gone. But anyways. It was almost like it made me think of like a Joker, like grimacing smile. Like, oh, he doesn't know what's coming. He's gone. Like the kicker that misses the field goal. Mm, Well, he won't be here on Monday. Yeah, exactly. 100%. Go ahead and continue on. I I just wanted to say it because I thought shit was funny. (laughs) No, it was perfect. Uh, it was as Harry had expected. Everyone here seemed to have been invited because they were connected to somebody well-known or influential. Everyone except Ginny Zabini, who was interrogated after McLagan, turned out 
that famous, beautiful witch for a mother. From what Harry could make out, she had been married seven times, each of her husbands dying mister mysteriously and leaving her mounds of gold. It was Neville's turn next. This was a very uncomfortable ten minutes for Neville's parents. Well-known Aurors had been tortured into insanity by Bellatrix Lestrange and a couple of Death Eater cronies. At the end of Neville's interview, Harry had the impression that Slughorn was reserving judgment on Neville, yet to see whether he had any of his parents' flair. And now, said Slughorn, shifting massively in his seat with the air of Peer introducing his star act, Harry Potter! Where to begin? I feel I barely scratched the surface when we met over the summer. He contemplated Harry for a moment as though he was a particularly large and sick piece of pheasant then said the succulent. chosen one uh was it pheasant is that how is it no it's, oh, it's succulent, succulent. Not succulent. A yeah, Suc- yeah succulent, succulent yeah. like a succubus <laughs> yeah good call so uh particularly large succulent piece of pheasant then said the chosen one they're calling you now harry said nothing belby mclagan and zabini were all staring at him of course said slughorn watching harry closely there have been rumors for years. I remember when, well, after that terrible night, Lily, James, and you survived. And the word was that you must have powers beyond ordinary. Zavini gave a tiny little cough that was clearly supposed to indicate amused skepticism. An angry voice burst out from behind the slughorn. Yeah, Zabini, because you're so talented. At, po- at posing? Oh, dear, <laughs> chuckled Slughorn comfortably, looking around at Jenny, who was glaring at Zavini around Slughorn's great belly. You want to be careful, Blaze? I saw this young lady perform the most marvelous bat bogey hex as I was passing her carriage. I wouldn't cross her. Zavini merely looked contemptuous. Anyway said Slughorn, turning back to Harry. Such rumors this summer, of course. One doesn't know what to believe. The prophet has been known to print inaccuracies, make mistakes, but there seems little doubt, given the number of witnesses, that there is quite a disturbance at the ministry, and that you were in the thick of it all. Harry, who cannot see any way out of this, without flatly lying, nodded but still said nothing. Slughorn beamed at him. So modest. So modest. No wonder Dumbledore is so fond. You were there then. But the rest of the stories is so sensational, of course. One doesn't know quite what to believe. This fabled prophecy, for instance. We never heard a prophecy, said Neville, turning geranium pink as he said it. That's right, said Jenny, staunchly. Neville and I were both there, too, and all this chosen one rubbish is just the prophet making things up as usual. You were both there, too, were you? Said Slughorn with great interest, looking from Jenny to Neville, but both of them sat clam-like before his encouraging smile. Yes, well, it is true that the prophet often exaggerates, of course, Slughorn said, sounding a little disappointed. I remember, dear, a Gwynog telling me, Gwynog Jones, I mean, of course, you know, the captain of the, the Hollyhead Harpies. 
<laughs> he meandered off into a long-winded reminiscence, but Harry had the distinct impression that Slughorn had not finished with him, and that he had not been convinced by Neville or Ginny. And Ginny. The afternoon wore on more anecdotes about illustrious wizards Slunghorn had talked, all of whom had been delighted to join what he called the Slug Club at Hogwarts. Harry could not wait to leave, but couldn't see how to do so politely. Finally, the train emerged from yet another long, misty stretch into a red sunset, and Slughorn looked around, blinking in the twilight. Good gracious, it's dark already. I didn't notice that they lit the lamps. You'd better go and change into your robes, all of you. McGlagan, you must drop by and borrow the book on Nogtails. Harry, Blaze, any time you're passing. Same goes for you, miss. He twinkled at Ginny. Well, off you go. Off you go. As he pushed past Harry into the darkening corridor, Zabini shot him a filthy look that Harry returned with interest. He, Jenny, and Neville followed Zabini back along the train. I'm glad it's over, muttered Neville. Strange man, isn't he? Yeah, he is a bit, said Harry, his eyes on Zabini. How come you ended up in there, Jenny? <laughs> and that's when she said, He saw me hex Zachariah Smith, said Jenny. You remember that idiot from Hufflepuff who was in the DA? And with that, I'm going to turn it back over to you, man. But this just shows, like... Not once did he ever really ever give a shit about any of those kids. <laughs> it was like trying to get a story out of him so he could keep building up his own reputation with everyone that was there. See, I, I think opposite. I think he did care about those kids because he thinks those kids are going to go on to be special because people who related to them were special. Because you see at the very end when he said like, uh, McLagan, you must drop by and borrow that book on Nogtails. And Harry, Blaze, anytime you're passing, same goes for you, okay. Miss. And he twinkled at Ginny. You notice we left off? He left off Neville and he left off Marcus Belby. He said, screw you guys. You're, we're done okay. with you. We're yeah. done with you two. Get, get them out of here. <laughs> so it's just so yeah, funny. Like, that was it. So I think he does care about the students, but he wants to like pick and choose quietly. It's almost like trading cards. Like, hmm, this one's not rare enough. We're going <laughs> to throw this to the side. We don't care about that one. We're going to put holographic cases on these ones here. Like, that, I don't know, man. That was dead on. That was <laughs> perfect, though. That was so true. But did you notice, though, as he was having those conversations, not once did he actually, when I say listen, I mean as far as like listen to actually what this person's trying to say. Not once did he actually listen to what that person was trying to say. This goes all the way back to where we talked about last week. Remember when he was in front of Harry, not once did he actually ask like any legitimate questions like wondering like why this boy isn't so excited when he's talking about this. He was like, yeah, he died. You know, the black family, he died. <laughs> <laughs> like no shit <laughs> like it's just dude like i don't know if he's like slightly oblivious maybe do you think he's like oblivious to things maybe yeah i just i think he's just so he's so focused on like staying well connected and making new connections for the future so that way when they all grow up they'll remember him you know <laughs> like i just think that's what like his whole focus is like you know like, like you yeah. like you said last week his he's all about himself like I think that he just wants like you know he he wants that all of that because he wants to be the one that said I knew him when and then they give me like special favors and shit like you know <laughs> so that's what I think yeah but. no that's great a hundred percent it's literally when you know as you and I know we both worked in entertainment or you know you meet someone famous it's like that person that's like 
oh yeah i remember when we hung out that time you know <laughs> just throwing this person's name out there that'd be like so, someone which i don't actually know like this person but like jim carrey or something right or who's nowadays tom holland or something is like that'd be like when i used to work on the spider-man movie i didn't hang out with tom holland i saw him like one time on set and it was from like a distance of like 300 feet away i'd be like oh man i remember that time i hung out with tom he is the man dude he was so down to earth i mean he was great in reality he's like one uh yeah <laughs> yeah you let me borrow that pin man thanks i appreciate it <laughs> i appreciate it bro that means a lot yeah but we were just best friends <laughs> it's just weird man he's a weird guy with That's... that i'll uh turn that back over to you Heck yeah. no i'm not friends with tom holland he's not a weird guy i meant slughorn <laughs> the weird guy <laughs> i'm gonna yeah. go ahead and take him here and get moving past the little slug club because this is something that's gonna be pretty big going forward is what what harry decides to do next i'm actually gonna read this third yep. paragraph through the end of the chapter to be honest um <clears throat> says harry broke off an idea just occurred to him a reckless but potentially wonderful idea in a minute's time, Zabini was going to re-enter the Slytherin six-year compartment, and Malfoy would be sitting there, thinking himself unheard by anybody except fellow Slytherins. If Harry could only enter unseen behind him, what might he not see or hear? True, there was little of the journey left. Hogsmeade Station was probably left in less than a half hour away, and judging by the wildness of the scenery flashing by the windows, but nobody else seemed prepared to take Harry's suspicions seriously, so it was down to him to prove them. I'll see you two later. Harry said under his breath, pulling out his invisibility cloak and flinging it over himself. But what are you? Later, whispered Harry, and darting after Zabini as quietly as possible, though the rattling of the train made such caution almost pointless. The corridors were almost completely empty now, and nearly everyone had returned to their carriages to change into their school robes and pack up their possessions. Though he was as close as he could get to Zabini without touching him, Harry was not quick enough to slip into the compartment behind Zabini when Zabini opened the door. Zabini was already sliding it shut when Harry hastily stuck out his foot to prevent it from closing. "'What's wrong with this thing?' said Zabini angrily as he smashed the sliding door repeatedly into Harry's foot. <laughs> Harry seized the door and pushed it open hard. Zabini, still clinging onto the handle, toppled over sideways into Gregory Goyle's lap, and in the and ensuing ruckus, Harry, had, uh, Harry darted into the compartment, leapt onto Zabini's temporarily empty seat, and hoisted himself up onto the luggage rack. It was fortunate that Goyle and Zabini were snarling at each other, drawing all eyes onto them, for Harry was quite sure his feet and ankles had been revealed as the cloak had flapped around them. Indeed, for one horrible moment, he thought he saw Malfoy's eyes follow his trainer as it whipped up outward out of sight. But then Goyle slammed the door shut, flung Zabini off him, and Zabini collapsed into his own seat looking ruffled. Vincent Crabbe returned to his comic, and Malfoy, sniggering, lay back down across two seats with his head in Pansy Parkinson's lap. Harry laid curled uncomfortably under the cloak to ensure every inch of him remained hidden and watched Pansy stroke the sleek blonde hair of Malfoy's forehead, smirking as he did so as though anyone would have been—I mean, anyone would have loved to have been in her place. The lanterns swinging from the carriage's ceilings cast a bright light over the scene. Harry could read every word of Crabbe's comic directly below him. So, Zabini, said Malfoy, what did Slughorn want? Just trying to make up to well-connected people, said Zabini, who was still glowering at Goyle. Not that he managed to find many. This information did not seem to please Malfoy. Who else had he invited? Uh, McLagan from Gryffindor, said Zabini. Oh yeah, his uncle's big in the ministry, said Malfoy. Someone else, call, Mel, uh, someone else called Belby from Ravenclaw. Not him, he's a prat, said Pansy. And Longbottom, Potter, and that Weasley girl, finished Zabini. Malfoy set up suddenly knocking Pansy's hand aside. He invited Longbottom? 
Well, I assume so, as Longbottom was there, said Zavini indifferently. <laughs> What's Longbottom got to interest Slughorn? Zavini shrugged. Potter, precious Potter. Obviously, he wanted to look at the chosen one, sneered Malfoy. But that Weasley girl? What's so special about her? A lot of boys like her, said Pansy, watching Malfoy out of the corner of her eyes for his reaction. Even you think she's good-looking, don't you, Blaze? And we all know how hard you are to please. I wouldn't touch a filthy little blood traitor like her, whatever she looked like, said Zabini coldly, and Pansy looked pleased. Malfoy sank back across her lap and allowed her to resume the stroking of his hair. Well, I pity Slughorn's taste. Maybe he's going a bit senile. Shame. My father said he was always a good wizard back in his day. My father used to be a bit of a favorite of his. Slughorn probably hasn't heard I'm on the train, or... I wouldn't bank on an invitation, said Zabini. He asked me about Knott's father when I first arrived. They used to be old friends. Apparently, when he heard he'd been caught at the ministry, he didn't look happy and Knott didn't get an invitation. I don't think Slughorn's interested in Death Eaters. Malfoy looked angry, but forced out a singularly humorous laugh. Well, who cares what he's interested in? What is he when he comes down to it? Just some stupid teacher. Malfoy yawned ostentatiously. I mean, I might not even be at Hogwarts next year. What's it matter to me if some fat old has-been likes me or not? What do you mean you might not be at Hogwarts next year, said Pansy indignantly, ceasing Malfoy's grooming at once. Well, you never know, said Malfoy with a ghost of a smirk. I might uh, have moved on to bigger and better things. Crouched in the luggage rack under his cloak, Harry's heart began to race. What would Ron and Hermione say about this? Crabbe and Goyle were gawping at Malfoy. Apparently, they had no inkling of any plans to move on to bigger and better things. Even Zabini had allowed, allowed a look of curiosity to mar his haughty features. And Pansy resumed the slow stroking Malfoy's hair looking dumbfounded. Do you mean him? Malfoy shrugged. Mother wants me to complete my education, but personally, I don't see it as that important these days. I mean, think about it. When the Dark Lord takes over, is he going to carry how many owls or newts anyone's got? Of course he isn't. It'll all be about the kind of service he received, the level of devotion he was shown. And you think you'll be able to do something for him? As Zabini scathingly, 16 years old and now he's not fully qualified yet? I've just said, haven't I? Maybe he doesn't care if I'm qualified. Maybe the job he wants me to do isn't something that you need to be qualified for, said Malfoy quietly. And Crab and Goyle were sitting with their mouths open like gargoyles. Pansy was gazing down at Malfoy as though she had never seen anything so awe-inspiring. I can see Hogwarts, said Malfoy, clearly relishing the effect he had created as he pointed out the blackened window. We better get our robes on. And Harry was so busy staring at Malfoy, he did not notice Goyle reaching up for his trunk, and as he swung it down, it hit Harry hard on the side of the head. He let out an involuntary gasp of pain, and Malfoy looked up at the luggage rack, frowning. Harry was not afraid of Malfoy, but he still did not much like the idea of being discovered hiding under his invisibility cloak by a group of unfriendly Slytherins. Eyes still watering and head still throbbing, he drew his wand. Careful not to disarrange the cloak, he waited and his breath held. To his relief, Malfoy seemed to decide that he had imagined the noise. He pulled on his robes like the others, locked his trunk, and as the train slowed to a jerky crawl, fastened a new traveling cloak around his neck. Harry could see the corridors filing up again and hoped that Hermione and Ron would take his things out onto the platform for him. He was stuck where he was until the compartment had quite emptied. At last, with a final lurch, the train came to a complete halt. Goyle threw the door open and muscled his way out into the crowd of second years, punching them aside. Crabbe and Zabini followed. You go on, Malfoy told Pansy, who was waiting for him with her hand held out as though he was, she was hoping he would hold it. I just want to check something. Pansy left. Now Malfoy and Harry were alone in the compartment. People were filing past, descending onto the dark platform. Malfoy moved over to the compartment door, let, it, let down the blind so that people in the corridor beyond could not peer in, and he bent over his trunk and opened it again. 
Harry peered down over the edge of the luggage rack, his heart pumping a little faster. What did Malfoy want to hide from Pansy? Was he about to see the mysterious broken object that was important to mend? Petrificus Totalis! Without warning, Malfoy pointed his wand at Harry, who was instantly paralyzed. As though in slow motion, he toppled out of the luggage rack and fell with an agonizing, floor-crashing shake at Malfoy's feet. The invisibility cloak trapped beneath him, his whole body revealed with his legs still curled absurdly into the cramped kneeling position. He couldn't move a muscle. He could only gaze up at Malfoy, who smiled broadly. I thought so, he said jubilantly. I heard Goyle's trunk hit you, and I thought I saw something white flash through the air after Zabini came back. His eyes lingered for a moment upon Harry's trainers. You didn't hear anything I care about, Potter. But, well, I've got you here. And he stamped hard on Harry's face, and Harry felt his nose break. Blood spurted everywhere. That's from my father. Now, let's see. Malfoy dragged the cloak from out from underneath Harry's immobilized body and threw it over him. I don't reckon they'll find you till the train's back in London. See you around, Potter. Or not. And taking care to tread on Harry's fingers, Malfoy left the compartment. And that closes out chapter 7. So, I thought that's pretty... There's a lot of pretty important parts into this. Not only about the slug club that we already kind of beat to death about talking about he wants to make well connections with people's parents who are already well connected or family members in the future, but... Harry went and snuck into the Slytherin's compartment. And they're openly talking about service to you-know-who. Because he even says when the Dark Lord takes over, he's not going to care about owls. Just the service that was shown to him and the devotion that was shown to him. So obviously we're already starting to see that like Harry should have a, an easier time than he does that we're going to jump into of convincing people that Malfoy has most likely become a Death Eater. Like he's, he said, and then he, Malfoy's like, oh, you didn't hear anything I cared about. Well, Malfoy was sitting there talking about all the things that he thinks that he could bring to value for Voldemort. So there is some pretty important stuff there, like, you know, talking about maybe something I need to do, I don't need to be qualified for, and, you know, we'll learn exactly what that is. But then he catches Harry off guard, stamps on his face, puts a visibly click on him, so like, now, like, this is the first time Malfoy's ever got the better of Harry one-on-one. This is the very, obviously Harry was like hiding in the luggage rack. It is what it is, but hey, he was smarter than Harry, saw him, caught his, yeah. caught his ass. And this is the first time that Malfoy kind of beat Harry one-on-one in this whole series. So I just found that really interesting. What were some takeaways that you had from that chapter? And I'll let you kind of jump into chapter eight after that. Uh, the biggest one was where, you know, he put the invisibility cloak on him. So I mean, think about it. If what doesn't happen next, I mean, his ass could have really been really up the creek without a paddle on that damn train. <laughs> I mean, it, like, it could have been bad, man. Um, no telling where he would have ended up. He could have been way past, end up back in the Marvelo graveyard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who knows, man? Shit could have, like, been a port key back to King's Cross. It, uh, but, yeah, it's... Uh, it kind of made you feel really worried for him, but for one, it's very surprising because we go back to Azkaban. He was going to beat Malfoy's ass. And then now it's like, what happened? I mean, you, uh, I don't know, man. <laughs> we'll see. But yeah, he got his ass kicked. He got his ass handed to him, though. But uh, yep. yeah. Um, do you want to kind of kick us off? On this one? No, go ahead. No, get in. Get into this chapter, man. I, I've just been talking for the last bit. Get get uh, get us rolling with chapter eight here, brother. 
Yeah, so um, this is kind of where I was talking about the invisibility cloak. So thank the Lord for this girl. Uh, I'll kind of take bullet points here, and then uh, I will take uh, when my boy shows up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Tonks, uh, Nymphadora. So Tonks winds up rescuing Harry on the train. And what she does is she like pulls the invisibility cloak off of him. Um, and winds up like healing him up and she actually was the one that sent a Patronus uh, to the castle just so that way uh, they can make sure Harry's safe. So just to read that part real quick, just so it's clear, this is actually on page 155 to 158. Um, so on 155, so it says, Harry could not move a muscle. He lay there beneath the invisibility cloak, feeling the blood from his nose flow hot and wet over his face, listening to the voices and footsteps in the corridor beyond. His immediate thought was that someone surely would check the compartments before the train departed again, but at once came the dis dispiriting realization that even if somebody looked into the compartment, he wouldn't be neither seen nor heard. His best hope was that somebody else would walk in and step on him. Harry had never hated Malfoy more than as he lay there, like an absurd turtle on its back, blood dripping sickeningly into its open mouth. What a stupid situation to have landed himself in. And now the last few footsteps were dying away. Everyone was shuffling along the dark platform outside, and he could hear the scraping of the trunks and a loud babble of talk. Ron and Hermione would think that he had left the train without them once they arrived at Hogwarts and took their places in the Great Hall looked up and down the Gryffindor table a few times and then finally realized that it was not there. He no doubt would be halfway back to London. He tried to make a sound, even a grunt, but it was impossible. Then he remembered that some wizards like Dumbledore could perform spells without speaking. Uh, and this is cool because we talked about wandless magic before on the show, me and you have. Uh, so he tried to summon his wand, which had fallen out of his hand by saying the words Accio wand over and over again in his hand, but nothing happened. He thought he could hear the rustling of the trees that surrounded the lake and far-off Hoot Owl, but no hint of search was being made or even he despised himself slightly for it. Panicked voices wondered where Harry Potter had gone. A feeling of hopelessness spread through him, and he imagined a convoy of festival-drawn carriages trundling up to the school and the muffled yells of laughter issuing from whichever carriage Malfoy was riding where he could be recounting his attack on Harry to Crabbe, Goyle, Zavini, and Pansy Parkinson. The train lurked, causing Harry to roll over to his side. Now he was staring at the dusty underside of the seats instead of the ceiling. The floor began to vibrate as the engine roared to life. The express was leaving and nobody knew he was still on it. Then he felt his invisibility cloak fly off and a voice over here, overhead said, Watch her, Harry! There was a flash of red light and Harry's body unfroze. He was able to push himself into a more dignified sitting position, hastily wipe the blood off his bruised face with the back of his hand, and raise his head to look up at Tonks, who was holding the invisibility cloak she had just pulled away. We better get out of here quickly, she said, as the train windows became obscured with steam and they began to move out of the station. Come on, we'll jump. So, like, if it wasn't for her, man, he could have just been stuck there. Like, gone off to Neverland. This is pretty much what would have happened. Like, uh, that's like the fear you have 
when you're in like second grade like what if i miss my stop are they going to figure out where i live <laughs> yeah man it could have been bad and of course uh he's greeted by one of my favorites so taking this here on uh this winds up being just so you all have the exact page number uh, but just a couple things before we get to that too so um harry uh it basically starts describing tonks as how we were saying as far as you know she was going through kind of that emotional period but it describes how harry is seeing tonks as much more serious and purposeful now like she has a purpose behind everything um because of what happened and tonks tells harry that dumbledore has bewitched um, the chains that Hogsmeade when they try to get in because it was an extra protection spell on, th on there. So remember we were talking about the security that's really been amped up and she actually tried to use the Alohomora charm and uh, it didn't work and there's anti-security jinxes. Well, she didn't try it. He tried it. He tried to say the Alohomora charm. He tried charm. it. Yeah. yeah, sorry. He tried it and she explained what it yeah, was. Yeah, she's like, yeah, that won't work exactly. Yep. Yeah, that's what I mean by that. Yeah, so she explained it was extra protection, and he was the one that like said Alohomora and tried to get through the chains there so he could sneak up like he did back in his second year with the car that came flying down the Whomping Willow, and he was greeted by the same person. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, if you guys wanted to turn with me, this starts over on 160. Uh, so on page 160... And I gotta say, it comes down with, as Kingsley Shacklebolt says, in style. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, that was the movie. That was the wrong that was version. The movie. Yeah, yeah, it was the Finne uh, Phineas Nagellus. Yeah, Phineas Nagellus, the portrait, said that in the, in the yeah. book. <laughs> there yeah. you go. Um, yeah, here we go. So he goes, uh, well, I'll, I'll say this sentence right before just so you get the scene harry pulled off the invisibility cloak so that he could be seen that he recognized with a rush of pure loathing the uplift hooked nose and long black greasy hair of severus snape well 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 <laughs> sneered snape taking out his wand and tapping the padlock once so that the chain snaked backwards and the gates creaked open Nice of you to turn up, Potter. Although you have evidently decided that the wearing of school robes would detract from your appearance. I couldn't change. I didn't have... Harry began, but Snape cut across him. There is no need to wait, Nymphadora. Potter is quite, uh, safe in my hands. I meant Hagrid to get the message, said Tonks, frowning. Hagrid was wait for the start of term feast, just like Potter is here. So... I take it instead, and incidentally, said Snape, standing back to allow Harry to pass him, I was interested to see your Patronus. He shut the gates in her face with a loud clang and tapped the chains with his wands again, so that they slithered clinking back into place. I think you were better off with the old one, said Snape, uh, the malice in his voice unmistakable. The new one looks weak. <laughs> As Snape swung the lantern about, Harry saw fleetingly a look of shock and anger on Tonk's face. Then she was covered in darkness once more. Good night, Harry called to her over her shoulder as he began the walk up to the school with Snape. Thanks for everything. See you, Harry, 
Snape did not speak for a minute or so. Harry felt as though his body was generating waves of hatred so powerful that it seemed incredible that Snape could not feel the burning in him. He had loathed Snape for their first encounter, but Snape had placed himself forever irrevocably beyond the possibility of Harry's forgiveness by his attitude towards Sirius. Whatever Dumbledore said, Harry had had time to think over the summer and had concluded that Snape's snide remarks on Sirius about remaining safely hidden while the rest of the Order of the Phoenix were off fighting Voldemort had probably been a powerful factor in Sirius rushing off to the Ministry the night that he died. Harry clung to this notion because it enabled him to blame Snape, which felt satisfying, and also because he knew that if anyone was not sorry that Sirius was dead, it was the man now striding next to him in the darkness. 50 points for Gryffindor for lateness, I think, <laughs> said Snape. And let me see. Another 20 for your muggle attire. You know, I don't believe any house has ever been in negative figures this early in the term. We haven't even started pudding. You might have set a record, Potter. The fury and hatred bubbling inside. Harry seemed ablaze white hot. That he would rather have been immobilized all the way back to London than tell Snape why he was late. I suppose you wanted to make an entrance, did you? Said Snape, continued. And with no flying car available, you decided that bursting into the Great Hall halfway through the feast ought to create a dramatic effect? Still, Harry remained silent. Though he thought his chest might explode, he knew Snape had come to fetch him for this. For the few minutes when he could needle and torment Harry without anyone else listening, they reached the castle steps at last, and as a great oaken front doors swung open into the vast flagged entrance hall a burst of talk and laughter and of tinkling plates and glasses greeted them throughout the door standing open into the hall harry wondered whether he could slip his invisibility cloak back on thereby gaining his seat at the long gryffindor table which inconveniently was the farthest from the entrance hall without being noticed as though he had read harry's mind however snape said no cloak, you can walk in so everyone sees you, which is what you wanted, I'm sure. <laughs> and with that, <laughs> and with that, I'm going to turn it back over to you. And uh, it says right here, just leading in so you can take over. Harry turned on the spot and marched straight through the open doors, anything to get away from Snape. <laughs> yeah, no <indeed>. cloak, <laughs> everyone can see you. I'm sure it's what you wanted. <laughs> yeah, there was a couple things I, I wanted to just bullet point quickly that I want to yeah. just re just highlight there. Um, I always like to talk about the spells that we see for the first time. So when mm -hmm. Tonks fixed Harry's broken nose, it was with the spell called Epixki. So I thought yeah. that was pretty cool. Uh, you know, you, you already kind of mentioned her and her demeanor and how her Patronus changed, but like that's pretty interesting. That like with a strong emotional loss, that your entire Patronus could change like ch yeah. figures and animals like. So even though, like, like what you were saying before, when you did your Pottermore test back in the day and you were on Ravenclaw, your Patronus was something and now it's a grass snake. It was it was like a, what was it before? Yeah, it was a dove. It was, it was, a, it was a dove before. Yeah. Right, so like now your yours is a grass snake. So it's funny, like, you know, that uh, they, they can change based on heavy emotion. But anyways, I'll take it up from page 162. Uh, <laughs> this is just some bullet points out here. Hermione... 
uh, used the spell Turgio to siphon the blood off Harry's face. Because remember, like, even though Tonks fixed his nose, there was still, like, the dried blood all over his face. So that was pretty good. Page 164, this is kind of cool. Professor Trelawney attended the start of term feast, which is odd because she, in the entire time, has never actually done that since Harry started going to school there. So her down there at the at the feast was a, was a big point of attention. On page 165, I'm going to go ahead and read the second paragraph regarding nearly headless Nick. <laughs> so let me go ahead and take that here. It says, There has been much talk on the very subject... Even among us ghosts, interrupted nearly headless Nick, inclining his barely connected head towards Harry so that it wobbled dangerously on its ruff. I am considered something of a Potter authority. It is widely known that we are friendly. I have assured the spirit community that I will not pester you for information. However, Harry Potter knows that he can confide in me with complete confidence. I told them I would rather die than betray his trust. So, basically, this is talking about like if Harry Potter is actually the, the chosen one or not, so... Uh, that I thought that was funny because like nearly had nearly had this nigga trying to make himself sound like super important like like he knows they're almost like <laughs> Slughorn of the spirit world. So I just yeah. thought that was something I wanted to highlight there. Um, page one sixty five when Dumbledore goes and gives his speech, the whole school sees Dumbledore's hand and they all kind of like gasp and whisper like the withered hand, the black one that we talk about. So that was mm-hmm. pretty cool. Um, page one sixty six. I love how like you know, Dumbledore announces Filch's new list of stuff that's banned, and on that new list, uh, all of Weasley's wizard wheezes uh, are banned from yeah. the Hogwarts now, according to Filch. So, want to add that there. Uh, also on page one sixty six, they're now looking for a new Quidditch commentator because Lee Jordan graduated. So the guy who kind of calls out the plays yeah. and stuff for the Quidditch matches, Lee Jordan graduated. He was in the same year as Fred and George, and so mm-hmm. they're looking for a new Quidditch commentator. Um, I will go ahead on page 166 and read uh, from a little bit, little chapter here. It says, not not the end of the chapter, but read from, we are pleased to welcome a new member of staff through uh, page 167. So I'm going to go ahead and start here. We are pleased to welcome a new member of staff this year, Professor Slughorn. Slughorn stood up, his bald head gleaming in the candlelight, his big waistcoated belly casting the table below into shadow. He's a former colleague of mine who has agreed to resume his old post of Potions, master. <laughs> potions? Potions? The word echoed all over the hall as people wondered whether they had heard right. Potions, said Ron and Hermione together, turning to stare at Harry. But you said... Professor Snape, meanwhile, said Dumbledore, raising his voice so that it carried over all the muttering, will be taken over the position of defense against the dark arts teacher. No, said Harry so loudly that many heads turned in his direction. He did not care. He was staring up the staff table, incensed. How could Dumbledore be? How could Snape be given the defense against a dark arts job by Dumbledore after all this time? Hadn't it been widely known for years that Dumbledore did not trust him to do it? But Harry, you said that Slughorn was going to be teaching defense against the dark arts," said Hermione. "I thought he was," said Harry, racking his brain, trying to remember what when Dumbledore had told him this. But now that he came to think of it. He was unable to recall Dumbledore ever telling him what Slughorn would be teaching. And Snape, who was sitting on Dumbledore's right, did not stand up at the mention of his name, really raised a hand in lazy acknowledgement of the applause from the Slytherin table. Yet Harry was sure he could detect a look of triumph on the features that he loved so much. Well, there's one good thing, he said savagely. Snape will be gone by the end of the year. What do you mean, asked Ron. That job's jinxed. 
No one's lasted more than a year. Quirrell actually died doing it. Personally, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed for another death. Harry, <laughs> said Hermione, shocked and reproachful. He might just go back to teaching potions at the end of the year, said Ron reasonably. That slughorn bloke might not want to stay long term. Moody didn't. That's why I wanted to kind of, I'll leave that part there. Now on page 168, I'm going to go ahead and read the first two paragraphs regarding Dumbledore's speech about, about Voldemort. So it says, now as everybody in this hall knows, Lord Voldemort and his followers are once again and once more at large and gaining strength. The silence seemed to tauten and strain as Dumbledore spoke. Harry glanced at Malfoy. Malfoy was not looking at Dumbledore, but making his fork hover in midair with his wand as though he found the headmaster's words unworthy of his attention. I cannot emphasize how dangerous the present situation is and how much care each of us at Hogwarts must take to ensure that we remain safe. The castle's magical fortifications have been strengthened over the summer. We are protected in new and more powerful ways, but we still must guard scrupulously against carelessness on the part of any student or member of staff. I urge you, therefore, to abide by any new security restrictions that you or teachers might impose on you, however irksome you might find them. In particular, the rule that you are not to be out of bed after hours. I implore you, should you notice anything strange or suspicious within or outside the castle, report it to a member of staff immediately. I trust you to conduct yourself always with the utmost regard for your own and others' safety. And so I'll go ahead and go on to page 169 here. Harry tells Ron what happened on the train. Uh, and I'll go ahead and read from where he says, yeah, well, never mind that, all the way through the end of the chapter because there's only one more page left. So, mm-hmm. yeah, well, never mind that, said Harry bitterly. Listen to what he was saying before he found out I was there. And Harry expected Ron to be stunned by Malfoy's boasts. When what Harry considered pure pigheadedness, however, Ron was unimpressed. Come on, Harry, he was just showing off for Parkinson. What kind of mission would you know who have given him? How do you know Voldemort doesn't need someone inside Hogwarts? It wouldn't be the first... I wish you'd stop saying that name, Harry, said a reproachful voice behind them. And Harry looked over his shoulder to see Hagrid shaking his head. Dumbledore uses that name, said Harry stubbornly. Yeah, well, that's Dumbledore, isn't it? Said Hagrid mysteriously. So how come you were late, Harry? I was worried. I got held up at the train. Why were you late? I was with Grop, said Hagrid happily. Lost track of time. He's got a new hope in the mountains now, and Dumbledore's fixed it a nice big cave. He's much happier than he was in the forest. We were having a good chat. Really, said Harry, taking care not to catch Ron's eye. The last time he had met Hagrid's half-brother, a vicious giant with a talent for ripping up trees by the roots, his vocabulary had comprised of five words, and two of which he was unable to pronounce properly. Oh yeah, he's really come on, said Hagrid proudly. You'll be amazed. I'm thinking of training him up as my assistant. Ron snorted loudly, but managed to pass it off as a violent sneeze. They were now standing beside the oak front doors. Anyways, I'll see you tomorrow. First lesson straight after lunch. Come early, and you can say hello to Buck, uh, I mean Witherwings. And raising an arm in cheery farewell, he had headed out to the front doors in darkness. Harry and Ron looked at each other. Harry could tell that Ron was experiencing the same sinking feeling as himself. You're not taking care of magical creatures, are you? Ron shook his head. And you're not either, are you? Harry shook his head too. And Hermione? She's not, is she? Harry shook his head again. Exactly what Hagrid would say when he realized that his three favorite students had given up his subject, he did not like to think. And that closes out chapter 8. Big things here. Your boy Snape never like relieves an opportunity to give Harry a bunch of shit. Gave him a hard time, made him feel like <laughs> crap for showing up late when, you know, 
I guess it was inside his control. He didn't have to try to spy on Malfoy, but damn, man. Didn't care for his appearance at all. Didn't realize there was blood over his face. Didn't ask <laughs> about his well-being. Just straight up like, oh, you just wanted to show off for everybody. Well, go ahead. Harry, walk right on in. Let them all know you're here. You're muggle attire. <laughs> and then going on from there, you know, talking about the, the Dumbledore bringing the subject of Voldemort to everybody's attention, how the new the security measures of the ministry have been imposed at Hogwarts. Like they're helping out with new fortifications, defensive spells. It's very interesting, especially when we get to like the last couple chapters of this entire book, because even with those fortifications, uh, let's just say every chain has a weak link. I'll say that. I won't <laughs> say anything else, but uh, anyways. And then uh, of course I just saw that like, it really is sad. You would think I, I was actually surprised when I read this for the first time when I was a kid that Harry, Ron and Hermione didn't, continue on taking care of magical creatures i thought they all did well in this class they all scored an e like or well actually hermione got an o the only one she got an e and was uh was uh defense against the dark arts but like i really thought that they were going to continue taking his class and they're just like no we're not gonna do that and so <laughs> it kind of sucks for haggard because he was only made a teacher when harry started there so it would have been cool if like he continued on with the damn subject all the way through but no he's just like mm. Well, I hope he's not too upset because we're not <laughs> taking that subject. And uh, the last thing of importance there that I'll detail and I'll pass it over to you is just the fact that Harry's trying to convince these guys that he's right about Draco Malfoy. Like, and he, like, you know, obviously it's like, you know, pretty much foreshadow because we'll figure out if Harry's right or not later on. But Harry's bringing up pretty compelling arguments and they're just ignoring him or passing it off as, you know, they're brushing it off to the side. And not for nothing, Harry has been. Not batting a thousand because he was wrong about the serious thing in last book, but like anytime Harry has a feeling about something, it's always turned out to be something that we should pay attention to. So yeah. I'll say that, and I'll turn it over to you to start us out here on uh, chapter nine. Yeah, man. No, that was, you hit the nail on the head there. Um, so first kind of thing that I have is you know Hermione and in the group they're talking about the situation that Harry had with Draco. And what he like claimed um, as far as his connections and the role he's trying to play here with like the Dark Lord and the Death Eater Mark, all this stuff. Uh, and then one big thing that really stuck out to me was, uh, you know, Hermione, like Ron says before Hermione can say anything. Well, I mean, well, this is Hermione. She says, well, she said, certainly, I don't know. I mean, it would be like Malfoy to make himself seem more important than he is. But that's a big lie to tell. Like, he was telling so much on the train there. Like, that's a big moment. Because, you know, they're, like, usually they're, like, you know, it's it's fucking Malfoy. Like, I mean, he's been talking shit for years. <laughs> like, who wouldn't think this is what it is? But it was, like, one of those so complex things. Like, either you thought of all night down to the T. That's what you were going to say all day. Or it, it's, you know, there's more to the truth here than meets the eye. Um Next thing I kind of have is, so I just thought this was pretty cool. Like, they were throwing that fanged frisbee back yeah. and forth. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> this badass. And, uh, of course, like, Hermione, my girl over here, like, she pulls like, a prefect badge out and says, yeah. I'll take that. <laughs> there you go. I'll be taking that. Yeah, exactly. Pulled the prefect badge on 172. So I just thought that was pretty funny. She, yeah. I wouldn't have said it. She said, hold it, said Hermione, throwing out an arm and halting 
the passing fourth year who was attempting to push past her with a lime green uh, disc clutch tightly in his hand. Think frisbees are banned. Hand it over, she told him sternly. The scowling boy handed over the snarling frisbee, ducked under her arm, and took off after her, his friends. Ron waited for him to vanish, then nudged the frisbee from Hermione's grip. Excellent! I've always wanted one of these. Like, that's so messed up. They literally stole the guy's frisbee. That's so messed up. That's such a wrong yeah. thing to do, too. That's totally a wrong thing to do. Totally a wrong thing to do. Uh, th okay, it's actually pretty funny, too, because we have another part that we're going to talk about today as well for things that happen from prefects. Let's just say it's n honesty... Isn't it exactly their best policy, this book? And right before um, you move on from that exact moment, because I think this is important to foreshadow here, it says, like, after Ron took that from the fourth year, like, Lavender Brown started giggling at him. Like, that's a yeah, little foreshadow. Like, like this is something one, yeah. going on here, man. Like, it's like, wait, he's never got attention from girls like this before. So that's just something to keep an eye on. But I'll let you continue on. I just wanted to make sure we added that in there. Yeah. Well... Granted, I'll say there's another one that starts picking up on things, but, you know, you got to play your cards right, man. You got to play your cards right. Um, next one, I'll send it right back over to you. So, uh, no one in uh, any of Harry, Ron, and Hermione's classes uh, took care for magical creatures. <laughs> so, that was... Uh, pretty sad that's on page 173 no reason to read it just like i mean you know that's the big bullet point there and it really takes a toll on uh the big boy we'll get into at some point you know he's over here pouting <laughs> so uh yeah because they can't spend every second with him but that was pretty funny though <laughs> it was like who took care of magical creature nobody Ain't nobody taking that shit this year. <laughs> Most <laughs> definitely not. And uh, I'll send that back to you, Jay Nelly. You got it, brother. This, this is a great part of the sentence to me because I have some really cool things in this section. I've got, uh, you know, from here, and about three pages of stuff to read. So this is about, like, the scheduling and all this good stuff and some full circle mm -hmm. moments. So after they had eaten, they remained in their places awaiting Professor McGonagall's descent from the staff table. The distribution of class schedules is more complicated than usual this year, for Professor McGonagall needed to first confirm that everybody had achieved the necessary owl grades to continue with their chosen newts. Hermione was immediately cleared to continue with charms, defense against the dark arts, transfiguration, herbology, arithmancy, ancient runes, and potions, and shot off to a first period ancient runes class without further ado. Neville took a little longer to sort out. His round face was anxious as Professor McGonagall looked down at his application and then consulted his owl results. Herbology? Fine, she said. Professor Sprout will be delighted to see you back with an outstanding owl. And you qualify for defense against the dark arts with an exceeds expectations, but the problem is transfiguration. I'm sorry, Longbottom, but an acceptable really isn't good enough to continue newt level. I just don't think you'd be able to cope with the coursework. Neville hung his head, and Professor McGonagall peered at him through her square spectacles. Why do you want to continue with Transfiguration anyway? I never had the impression that you particularly enjoyed it. Neville looked miserable and muttered something about, My grandmother wants. Hmph! snored Professor McGonagall. It's high time your grandmother learned to be proud of the grandson she's got, rather than one that she thinks that she ought to have. 
particularly after what happened at the ministry. Neville turned very pink and blinked confusedly. Professor McGonagall had never paid him a compliment before. I'm sorry, Longbottom, but I cannot let you into my newt class. I see that you have an exceeds expectation in charms, however. Why not try for a newt in charms? My grandmother thinks charms is a soft option, mumbled Neville. Take charms, said Professor McGonagall, <laughs> and I shall drop Augusta a line, reminding her that just because she failed her charms owl, the subject is not necessarily worthless. And smiling slightly at the look of delighted incredulity on Neville's face, Professor McGonagall tapped a blank schedule with the tip of her wand and handed it, now carrying the details of his new classes, to Neville. Professor McGonagall then turned to Parvati Patil, whose first question whether Ferenz, the handsome centaur, was still teaching divination. He and Professor Trelawney are dividing classes between them this year, said Professor McGonagall, a hint of disapproval in her voice. It was common knowledge that she despised the subject of divination. The six years being taken by Professor Trelawney. Parvati saw for divination five minutes later looking slightly crestfallen. So, Potter, Potter, said Professor McGonagall, consulting her notes as she turned to Harry. Charms, defense against the dark arts, herbology, transfiguration, all fine. I must say I was pleased with your transfiguration, Mark Potter, very pleased. Now, why have you not applied to continue with potions? I thought it was your ambition to become an Auror. It was, but you told me I had to get an outstanding in my owl, Professor. And so you did, when Professor Snape was teaching the subject. Professor Slughorn, however, is perfectly happy to accept newt students with exceeds expectations at owl. Do you wish to proceed with potions? Yes, said Harry, but I didn't buy it any books or ingredients or anything. Well, I'm sure Professor Slughorn will lend you some, said Professor McGonagall. Very well, Potter, here's your schedule. Oh, by the way, 20 hopefuls have already put their names down for the Gryffindor Quidditch team. I shall pass the list to you in due course, and you can fix up the trials at your leisure. And after a few minutes, Ron was clear to do the same subject as Harry, and the two of them left the table together. Look, said Ron delightedly, gazing at his schedule. We've got a free period now, a free period after break, and after lunch. Excellent! They returned to the common room, which was now empty apart from a half a dozen seventh years, including Katie Bell, the only remaining member of the original Gryffindor Quidditch team that Harry had joined in his first year. I thought you'd get that. Well done, she called over, pointing at the captain's badge on Harry's chest. Tell me when you called trials. Don't be stupid, said Harry. You don't need to try. I've watched you play for five years. You mustn't start off like that, she said warningly. For all you know, there's someone much better than me out there. Good teams have been ruined before because captains just kept playing old faces or letting in their friends. And at that, Ron looked a little uncomfortable and began playing with a fanged frisbee that Hermione had taken from the fourth-year student. It zoomed around the common room, snarling and attempting to take bites of the tapestry, and Crookshank's yellow eyes fixed on it, and it hissed when it came too close. So there, from there, I will go ahead and <laughs> turn it back go over to Chase, because I thought there were some cool things in there, but I'll, I'll save it when we kind of de debrief at the end of the chapter. Um, <laughs> and there's also a potential plot hole that I have in there as well, so I'll, I'll keep you guys guessing and waiting for that later on. But with that, I'll go ahead and, and turn it over to Chase for page 177. Yeah, man. It, uh, I mean, it's just all really kind of... I guess this is really kind of the first time it sinks into a lot of students, the grades they made over the summer. Because think about it, too. They just kind of received them in the mail. You know, it's not exactly what they wanted. They were just like, whatever. Well, like, just like here with Harry, he doesn't even take into account, like, things that are going to come up, how things can change, right? And that sort of thing. Um, 
but you know this is where it really finally hits them that of course you know they're back at school and i think really it's just the owls piece is where it's <laughs> like and i feel bad for like long bottom and these guys because they really get the short end of the stick on that but so um from here i have 180 page 182 uh, just something that was pretty cool. Are you? Did you have anything in between page one eighty two though and one eighty one? I do. I have like, like three things before, so I'll go ahead and, and okay. finish those up, and I'll get okay. So I'll give it to you at page one eighty two. Then let me go ahead and okay. and get get there with you. So on page one seventy seven, uh, I'm just gonna go ahead and talk a little bit about Snape's first defense against the dark arts class because <laughs> yeah. I think this is actually pretty important here. So this is, I'm going to go ahead and start reading. I have not asked you to take out your books, said Snape, closing the door and moving to face the class from beyond his desk. Hermione hastily dropped her copy of Confronting the Faceless back into her bag and stood under her chairs. I wish to speak to you, and I want your fullest attention. His black eyes roved over the upturned faces, lingering for a fraction of a second longer on Harry's than anyone else's. You have had five teachers in this subject so far, I believe. You believe, like you haven't watched them all come and go, Snape, hoping you'd be next, thought Harry scathingly. Naturally, these teachers will all have had their own methods and priorities. Given this confusion, I am surprised so many of you scraped an owl on this subject. I shall be even more surprised if you manage to keep up with the newt work, which will be much more advanced. And Snape set off around the edge of the room, speaking now in a lower voice, the crafts craned their necks to keep him in view. The dark arts, said Snape, are many varied, ever-changing, and eternal. Fighting them is like fighting a many-headed monster, which each time a neck is severed, sprouts a head even fiercer and cleverer than before. You are fighting that which is unfixed, mutating, and indestructible. Harry stared at Snape. It was surely one thing to respect the Dark Arts as a dangerous enemy, another to speak of them as though Snape was doing with a loving caress in his voice. Your defenses, said Snape a little louder, must therefore be as flexible and inventive as the arts that you seek to undo. These pictures, he indicated a few of them as he swept past, give a fair representation of what happens to those who suffer, for instance, the Cruciatus Curse. He waved a hand toward the witch who was clearly shrieking in agony. Feel the Dementor's kiss, a wizard lying huddled in blank-eyed slumped against a wall. Or provoke the aggression of the Inferius. A bloody mass lay upon the ground. Hasn't Inferius been seeing them? Said Pravati Patil in a high-pitched voice. Is it definite he is using them? The Dark Lord has used Inferi in the past, said Snape, which means you will be well advised to assume he might use them again. Now, he set off again around the other side of the classroom towards his desk and watched him as he walked, his dark robes billing behind him. You are, believe, I believe, complete novices in the use of nonverbal spells. What is the advantage of a nonverbal spell? Hermione's hand shot in the air, and Snape took his time looking around at everybody else, making sure he had no choice before saying curtly, Very well, Miss Granger. Your adversary has no warning what kind of magic you're about to perform, said Hermione, which gives you a split-second advantage. An answer almost copied word for word from the standard book of spells, grade six, said Snape dismissively, over in the corner Malfoy sniggered, but correct in essentials. Yes. Those who progress to using magic without shouting incantations gain an element of surprise in their spellcasting. Not all wizards can do this, of course, 
It is a question of concentration and mind power, which some, his gaze lingered maliciously upon Harry, lack. So I want to put it, I want to read that for sure because we started on nonverbal spells and, yeah. you know, our thing for me and you, because we had that one day where we were hanging out and we were kind of arguing about nonverbal spells when we were drinking out by the pool and like the people and the thing at oh, your yeah, old place. Man. And so it's funny, we've now finally come from there to like where it actually is mentioned and brought up the nonverbal spells and exactly who can use them and how they can be used. So now we've actually got the evidences to support, you know, the conversation that we had had geez months ago man so i just i thought that was pretty cool i definitely wanted to make sure we read that uh, definitely uh this is cool too on page 179 hermione was actually able her very first class to non-verbally repel neville's jelly flakes jinx so she was actually able mm-hmm. to do that her very first class um page 180 snape goes and non-verbally attack harry and harry shouts the shield charm protego and knocks snape off balance and he hit a desk yeah. And so that was that was pretty funny. And he said, you know, uh, you know, do you remember me telling you, you know, to use nonverbal spells? And then he like he like gave him a whole insult. He's like, he's like, yes. He's like, yes, sir. He's like, there's no need to call me sir. That's what Harry said to Snape. And, you know, and Snape gave him a damn detention, man. So I thought that was pretty cool. But um, other than that, I just want to read that he uh, he ended up getting a letter from. Dumbledore, and that's where I'll leave it off at you, is when you know, the Dumbledore letter that Harry receives says, Dear Harry, I would like to start our private lessons this Saturday. Kindly come along to my office at 8 p.m. I hope you're enjoying your first day back at school. Yours sincerely, Albus Dumbledore. P.S. I enjoy acid pops. So I'll go ahead, and, and now that we're on page 182, I'll go ahead and pass it to Chase, and he'll take us away from there. Yeah, man. Uh, just starting on 182, I thought this was cool. So the new password um for dumbledore's office with the gargoyle uh winds up being acid pops <laughs> which is pretty cool so i thought it was pretty funny uh because at first you know so, some people out there might be thinking you know starting to trip and visit friend george's shop <laughs> but that's not what that is uh so then the second thing i kind of have here is um so uh it, it wound up Albus, did you want to read the letter? Uh, I, you were talking about the letter, you said, right? Yeah, I read I it already. Yeah, I already read contradictory. the letter. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, well, it interfered with Snape's detention yep. <laughs> that he gave Harry. Yeah. Um, and then uh, on this, uh, after that, I did put, so over a dozen students had made it to the uh, Newt's level position, um, but the rest evidently failed. <laughs> so it was only like a dozen students that made it to uh, like the newts. And they were talking about their class uh, in, in that class specifically. Uh, it was just Harry, Ron, and Hermione <laughs> that were the only Gryffindors there uh, as far as uh, potions. Yeah, out. talking and about potions. Yeah, yeah. cool. Because um, it was four Slytherins, including Malfoy. Four Ravenclaws, one Hufflepuff, who was Ernie McMillan, and then just them, as far as going to the potions class there. Um, Then, so, kind of jumping back here, uh, I'm picking up on page 185. So, looking on 185, this is going to, not going into too much, but... um, so before you get into 185, I, I want to catch up with you so that way I get on 185 too because there's yeah, a couple of things I put in there. 
So yeah. if you're going to start on 185, let me go ahead and, and get my things for like one on page 182 here. Sure. On page 182, I want to read the, the, the third paragraph. It's about the speculation of Dumbledore's lessons with uh, Harry. So, he, Ron, and Hermione spent the whole break speculating on what Dumbledore would teach Harry. Ron thought it would be most likely to teach him spectacular jinxes and hexes of the types the Death Eaters would not know. Hermione said such things were illegal and thought it much more likely that Dumbledore wanted to teach Harry advanced defensive magic. And after break, she went off to Rithwisby while Harry and Ron returned to the common room, where grudgingly they started Snape's homework, and this turned out to be so complex that they had not finished when Hermione had joined them after their free period in lunch. And so I wanted to make sure I wanted to read that there just because it kind of gives an idea of what everyone was thinking for the lessons that Dumbledore was going to give Harry and in how Dumbledore's lessons with Harry actually turn out later on. So definitely want to mention right. that there. On page 184, there's a pretty good pretty good foreshadow. Uh, this is actually the... Uh, Ron Slughorn actually gives Harry and Ron secondhand used books for advanced potion making. Well, this is pretty damn huge foreshadow because one of those advanced potion making books that were secondhand ends up being uh, from the title of this book. So I yeah. wanted to definitely touch on that really on page did. 184. Big foreshadow. Then the last thing on 184, if I'll pass it over to you on 185, is Professor Slughorn asks the class if they can tell what the three portions are. Um, you know, And then I'll read from where he indicated the culture nearest the Slytherins through what's so impressive about that in 186. Let me go ahead and and take that there. So, uh, let's see. He indicated the cauldron nearest the Slytherin table. Harry raised himself slightly in his seat and saw what looked like a plain water boiling inside it. Hermione's well-practiced hand hit the air before anybody else's and Slughorn pointed at her. It's very tossierum, a colorless, odorless portion that forces the drinker to tell the truth, said Hermione. Very good, very good, said Slughorn happily. Now, he continued pointing at the cauldron nearest the Ravenclaw table, this one here is pretty well known. Featured in a few ministry leaflets lately, too. Who can... Hermione's hand was fastest once more. It's Polyjuice Potion, sir. Harry, too, had recognized the slow, bubbling, mud-like substance in the second cauldron, but he did not resent Hermione getting the credit for answering the question. She, after all, was the one who succeeded in making it back in their second year. Excellent, excellent. Now this one here... Yes, my dear. Slughorn now looking slightly bemused as Hermione pushed her, pushed her hand in the air again. It's Amortentia. It is indeed. It almost seems foolish to ask, said Slughorn, but I assume you know what it does. It's the most powerful love potion in the world, said Hermione. Quite right. You recognize it, I suppose, by its distinct mother-of-pearl sheen and the steam rising in characteristic spirals, and supposedly it smells different to each of us according to what attracts us. I can smell freshly mown grass, new parchment, and then she started to turn slightly pink and did not complete the sentence. So I wanted to read that there couple things that I thought was super important is that we need to recognize how talented Hermione Granger is. We are now in the newt level. The newt level are the nastily exhausting wizarding tests. This is the highest testing that you're going to take in your education. Hermione made the polyjuice potion in their second year. This is yeah. a newt yeah, level a potion. A newt level potion she mm -hmm. made in their second year, man. She is yeah. wildly impressive. That's so crazy. And then, of course, the Amor Tensha. The reason I wanted to read that is because you guys remember uh, back on uh, in Order of the Phoenix, I made an interesting fact about Amor Tensha, but I couldn't go into yeah. full depth because I didn't want to reveal Slughorn and what was going on here. So now we got to see 
where that Amor Tensha Love Potion actually made its appearance. It's here in Professor Slughorn's class. It's the most powerful Love Potion, and it actually is another foreshadow for what ends up happening later on when someone becomes infatuated with somebody else. So with that there, I'll <laughs> go ahead and turn it over to Chase, and he'll go ahead and take us away from there. Yeah, man. No, that was great. It's, uh... Yeah, and you know, I'm a I'm a Granger Things kind of guy, and, and it's... That is true. That's one thing... As far as, like, the movie they really overblow it but the book it's like almost at some points it's not even taken into notice as much because like the yeah. polyjuice potion remember in the book they had to go all the way to the restricted section at that level just to be able to read it they uh, had so to I steal mean, ingredients from snape's like thing they had to steal like his ingredients yeah. <laughs> like yeah <man. laughs> right so uh yeah just taking it from there and this will pretty much close this chapter out, but just because it, it kind of is a big moment in this class. Uh, so, I guess just starting here, it just says, um, it's the most powerful love potion in the world, uh, which is what you said, so said Hermione. Quite right, you recognized it. I suppose, by its distinctive mother of pearl sheen, in the steam rising in the characteristic spirals, said Hermione enthusiastically. And it's supposed to smell differently. Each of us, according to what attracts us, and I can smell freshly mown grass and new parchment. And and I, just, I th- thought that was really hysterical, too. Like, usually, like, uh, any girl would be like, oh, you know, I love the smell of candles and lotion and all this stuff. She's like, I just love going outside and mowing my grass. Like, to be honest, typical- though... Yo, that smell was really great. I love the smell of freshly mown grass, too. I think it smells delicious. I don't know, uh, man. I love that smell. Uh, I mean, yeah, I guess so. I mean, hey, more power to her. I was thinking more like, I guess she was just so damn bland. <laughs> just say, like, I guess if I mown my grass, like, all right. But, yeah, hey, more power to her, man. Um, so then from here, uh, it just goes... Uh, so Hermione Granger is this her and actually I'm gonna let you take this sentence because this goes into one of your interesting facts do you want to read that oh yeah yeah good point good point (laughs) yeah so she turned slightly pink and did not complete the sentence may I ask your name my dear said Slughorn ignoring Hermione's embarrassment Hermione Granger sir Granger Granger can you possibly be related to Hector Dagworth Granger who founded the most extraordinary society of potioners no I don't think so sir I'm Muggleborn, you see. And so the reason Chase wanted me to take that sentence is because my interesting fact that you will hear about later on today in this episode uh, involves Hector Dagworth Granger. That is who my interesting fact is actually on today. So I'll go ahead and give and pass it back over to you. But yes, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, of course, man. Um, so it says, Harry saw Malfoy lean close to Knot and whisper something. Both of them sniggered, but Slughorn showed no dismay on the contrary. He beamed and looked from Hermione to Harry, who was sitting next to her. Oh, one of my best friends is a muggle-born, and she's the best in our year. I'm assuring that this is the very friend of whom you spoke, Harry. Yes, sir, said Harry. Well, well, take take 20 well-earned points from Gryffindor, Miss Granger, said Slughorn genially. Malfoy looked rather as he had done that the time Hermione had punched him in the face. <laughs> Hermione turned to Harry with a radiant expression and whispered, did you really tell him I'm the best in the year? Oh, Harry. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. 
Well, what's so impressive about that? Whispered Ron, who for some reason looked annoyed. You are the best in the year. I've told him, so if he'd ask me... Hermione smiled but made a shh gesture so that she could hear what Slughorn was saying. Ron looked slightly disgruntled. And Mortentia doesn't really create love, of course. It is impossible to manufacture or imitate love. No, this is simply a cause of power, infatuation, or obsession. It is probably the most dangerous and powerful potion in this room. Oh, yes. He said, nodding gravely at Malfoy and Knot, both of whom were smirking skeptically. When you have seen as much of life as I have, you will not underestimate the power of obsessive love. And now, said Slughorn, Slughorn, it is time for us to start work. Sit. You haven't told us what's in this one, said Ernie McMillan, pointing at the small black cauldron standing on Slughorn's desk. The potion within was splashing about merrily. It was color of molten gold. Large drops were leaping like goldfish above the surface, though not a particle had spilled. Aho! said Slughorn again. Harry was sure that Slughorn had not, had not forgotten the potion at all, but had waited to be asked for the dramatic effect. Yes, that. Well, that one, ladies and gentlemen is most curious little potion called Felix Felices, which, by the way, we have a dragon on this show. I don't know if a lot of people know. Um, and uh, Josh, uh, Jay Nelly has mentioned him before and has named it. What's his name, Jay Nelly? Felix the Fierce. That is yeah. ours. So if you guys see our shirts on here, if not, you can check our cover art wherever you find our podcast. That's the Golden Dragon in the background that's breathing out the factor fantasy logo which Chase and i right below it and that's kind of the this is one of the reasons why we decided to name it felix we were debating on the color of the dragon for a long time we were in between gold uh black and ice blue and so when we decided upon gold because it kind of i won't give you guys the exact thing that's kind of between chase and i why we decided on gold but we needed something you know every dragon has like a that has a, an extra name, right? If you, especially we talk about Game of Thrones back, you know, when we started the show, uh, like Balerion the Dread, right? Like that, like that always has something with it, right? So we decided, you know, Felix was perfect because uh, Felix the Fierce, you know, he's a fierce-looking dragon. If you look at how he looks, and, and the golden color was perfect because of this golden potion, Felix Felices. And so since our show incorporates all of fantasy and not just Game of Thrones and not just Harry Potter, it was a perfect mix of everything that we do. So our dragon that you see on our cover art is Felix uh, Felix the Fierce. And uh, very soon, Chase and I will be getting uh, a 3D representation of him in the coming future. And I'll just leave that there and let Chase continue on. <laughs> Good stuff, man. Yeah, so we got the Ridiculous Crew with Felix the Fierce. <laughs> hey, man, like, if you ever wanted to know the secrets of our show, <laughs> this is why we're on this series. <laughs> there you <laughs> go, guys. Um, so, yes, well, that one, ladies and gentlemen, is a most curious little potion called Felix Felices. Felices. How does he say it? Felices? I think Felices? it's Felices, but I could be wrong. It's Fel- I, I, I think it's uh, Felix Felices. But. Okay, that's what I was thinking, too. I just want to make sure I got that right 
I take it, he turned, smiling to look to Hermione, who had let out an audible gasp. That you know what Felix Felices does, Miss Granger. It's liquid luck, said Hermione excitedly. It makes you lucky. The whole class seemed to sit up a little straighter. Now all Harry could see was Malfoy was the back of his sleek blonde head because he was at least giving Slughorn his full and undivided attention. Quite right. Take another points? Ten points for Gryffindor. Yes, it's funny, little potion. Felix Felices, said Slughorn. Desperately, tricky to make and disastrously get wrong. However, if brewed correctly, as this has been, you will find that all your endeavors tend to succeed. At least until the effect wears off. Why don't people drink it all the time, said Terry Boot eagerly. Because if taken in excess, it causes giddiness, recklessness, dangerous overconfidence, said Slughorn. Too much of a good thing, you know. Highly toxic in large quantities, but taken sparingly and very occasionally. Have you ever taken it, sir? Asked Michael Corner with great interest. Twice in my life, said Slughorn. Once when I was 24, once when I was 57. Two tablespoons, taking it with breakfast, two perfect days. He gazed dreamily into the distance. Whether he was play-acting or not, thought Harry, the effect was good. And that, says Slughorn, apparently coming back down to earth, is what I shall be offering as a prize in this lesson. There was a silence in which every bubble and gurgle of the surrounding potions seemed magnified tenfold. One tiny bottle of Felix Felices, said Slughorn, taking a minuscule glass bottle with a cork in and out of its pocket, showing it to them all. Enough for twelve hours luck, from dawn to dusk. You will be lucky in everything you attempt. Now, I must give you a warning that Felix Felices is a banned substance in organized competitions. Sporting events, for instance, examinations, or elections, so the winner is used it, it on an ordinary day only. And watch out, that ordinary day becomes extraordinary. So, said Slughorn, suddenly brisk, how are you to win my fabulous prize? Well, by turning to page 10 of advanced potion making. We have a little over an hour left to us, which should be time for you to make a decent attempt at drought of the living death. I know it is more complex than anything you have attempted before, and I do not expect a perfect potion from anybody. The person who does best, however... We'll win, little Felix here. Off you go! There was a scraping as everyone drew their cauldrons towards them and some of the loud clunks as people began adding weights to their scales, but nobody spoke. The concentration within the room was almost tangible. Harry saw Malfoy riffling feverishly through his copy of advanced potion making. It could not have been clearer that Malfoy really wanted the lucky day. Harry had been bent swiftly over the tattered book Slughorn had lent him. To his annoyance, he saw that the previous owner had scribbled all over the pages so that the margins were as black as the printed portions. Bending low to decipher the ingredients even here, the previous owner had made annotations cross things out. Harry hurried off towards the store cupboard to find what he needed. As he dashed back to his cauldron, he saw Malfoy cutting up valerian roots as fast as he could. 
Everyone kept glancing around at what the rest of the class was doing. This was both an advantage, advantage and disadvantage of potions, that it was hard to keep your work private. Within ten minutes, the whole place was full of bluish steam. Hermione, of course, seemed to have progressed the furthest. Her potion already resembled the smooth black currant-colored liquid mentioned as the ideal halfway stage. Having finished chopping his roots, Harry bent low over the book again. It was really very irritating. Having to try and decipher the directions under all the stupid scribbles of the previous owner, whom for some reason had taken the issue to order to cover up the sophorious bean, sophorious bean, and had written in the alternative instruction. Crush with the flat side of the silver dagger. Releases juice better than cutting. Sir, I think you knew my grandfather. Abraxas Malfoy? Harry looked up. Slughorn was just passing the Slytherin table. Yes, said Slughorn without looking at Malfoy. I was sorry to hear he died, although of course it wasn't unexpected. Dragonpox at his age. And he walked away. Harry bent back over the cauldron, smirking. He could tell that Malfoy had expected to be treated like Harry or Zabini. Perhaps even hoped for some preferential, <laughs> preferential treatment of this type. He had learned to expect from Snape. It looked as though Malfoy would have to rely on nothing but talent to win the bottle of Felix Felicis. The sophorious bean was proving very difficult to cut up. Harry turned to Hermione. Can I borrow your silver knife? She nodded impatiently, not taking her eyes off her portion, her potion, which was still deep purple, though according to the book, ought to be turning a light shade of lilac by now. Harry crushed the bean with the flat side of the dagger. To his astonishment, it immediately exuded so much juice, he was amazed the shriveled bean could have held it all. Hastily scooping it into the cauldron, he saw to his surprise that the potion immediately turned exactly the shade of the lilac described by the book. His annoyance with the previous owner vanishing on the spot, Harry now squinted at the next line of instructions. According to the book, he had to stir counterclockwise until the potion turned clear as water. According to the addition the previous owner had made, however, he ought to add a clockwise stir for every seventh counterclockwise stir. Could the old owner be right twice? Harry stirred counterclockwise, held his breath, and stirred once clockwise. The effect was immediate. The potion turned palest pink. How are you doing that? demanded Hermione, who was red-faced, whose hair was growing bushier and bushier in the fumes from her cauldron. Her potion was still resolutely pink. Purple. At a clockwise turn. Oh, sorry. What'd you say? It was purple. Her potion was absolutely purple, oh, not pink. Oh, sorry. I was thinking of the potion color. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's, yeah. yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Her potion was still resolutely purple. So her, yeah, purple. Yeah. Good call. Yeah, resolutely purple. Uh, so from her cauldron, her potion was resolutely purple. At a clockwise stir. No, no. The book says counterclockwise. <laughs> she snapped. Harry shrugged and continued what he was doing. Seven stirs counterclockwise, one clockwise, pause. Seven stirs counterclockwise, one stirs clockwise. Across the table, Ron was cursing fluently under his breath. His potion looked like liquid licorice. Harry glanced around. As far as he could see, no one else's potion had turned as pale as his. He felt elated, something that had certainly never happened before in the dungeon. 
And time's up! Called Slughorn. Stop stirring, please! Slughorn moved slowly among the tables, peering into the cauldrons. He made no comment, but occasionally gave the potions a stiff or a sniff. At last, he reached the table where Harry, Ron, and Hermione and Ernie were sitting. He smiled ruefully to the tar-like substance in Ron's cauldron. He passed over Ernie's navy concoction, Hermione's potion. He gave an approving nod, and then he saw Harry's. And a look of incredulous delight spread over his face. The clear winner, he cried to the dungeon. Excellent, excellent, Harry. Good lord, it's clear you've inherited your mother's talent. She was a dab hand at potions, Lily was. Here you are. Then here you are. One bottle of Felix Felicis, as promised. And use it well. Harry slipped the tiny bottle of golden liquid into his inner pocket, feeling an odd combination of delight at the furious looks on the Slytherin's faces, guilt at the disappointed expression on Hermione's Ron's looked simply dumbfounded. How did you do that? He whispered to Harry as they left the dungeon. Got lucky, I suppose, said Harry, because Malfoy was within earshot. Once they were securely in ensconced at the Gryffindor table for dinner, however, he felt safe enough to tell them. Hermione's face became stonier with every word he uttered. I suppose you think I cheated? He finished, aggravated by her expression. Well, it wasn't exactly your own work, was it? She said stiffly. He only followed different instructions to ours, said Ron. Could have been a catastrophe, couldn't it? But he took a risk and it paid off. He heaved a sigh. Slughorn could have handed me that book, but no. I get the one no one's ever written on, puked on by the look of it on page 52, but... Hang on, said a voice uh, close by Harry's left ear, and he caught a sudden waft of that flowery smell he had picked up in Slughorn's dungeon. He looked around and saw that Jenny had joined them. Did I hear right? You've been taking orders from something someone wrote in a book, Harry? She looked alarmed and angry. Harry knew what was on her mind at once. Nothing. It's nothing, he said reassuringly, lowering his voice. It's not like you know Riddle's diary. It's just an old textbook someone scribbled on. But you're doing what it says. I just tried a few tips written in the margins, honestly. Jenny, there's nothing funny. Jenny, Jenny's got the point. Got a point, said Hermione, perking up at once. We ought to check that there's nothing odd about it. I mean, all these funny instructions, who knows? Hey, said Harry indignantly as she pulled his copy of Advanced Potion Making out of his bag and razor wand. Specialis Revelio, she said, wrapping it smartly on the front cover. Nothing whatsoever happened. The book simply lay there, looking old and dirty and dog-eared. Finished, said Harry irritably. Or do you want to wait and see if it does a few backflips? It seems all right, said Hermione, still staring at the book suspiciously. I mean, it really does seem to be just the textbook. Good, then I'll have it back, said Harry, snatching it off the table, but it slipped from his hand and landed open on the floor. Nobody else was looking. Harry bent low to retrieve the book, and as he did so, he saw something scribbled along the bottom of of the back cover, in the same small cramped handwriting as in the instructions that he won him his bottle of Felix Felicis, now safely hidden inside a pair of socks 
in his trunk upstairs. The book is the property of the Half-Blood Prince. Yeah, man. Okay. So a lot of stuff in that one potions class there. Um, we saw really kick up. So not only did you kind of see how the potion was made, um, but you now see that this book that Harry has come across definitely was from someone that knew what they were doing. So I'll definitely go ahead and just say that. Uh, and me personally, I wouldn't call it cheating. He was just reading a different set of instructions. <laughs> no problem there. No problem there. But yeah, man, what'd you get out of this chapter? Lots of good stuff, man. Uh, talking, going back as far as when Snape had his first defense against the dark arts lesson, uh, mm -hmm. took a lot away from that. And even Hermione said, you know, Snape actually sounds a little bit like you, Harry. Like you're telling us like how it really <laughs> is when it's out there. So Snape kind of lays down his expectations and how the coursework is going to be. Um, I have a little bit of a plot hole regarding that. I told you guys, I'm just going to, I'm going to sprinkle that there while I say I got a plot hole with that whole situation. And then we'll talk about that later. But then going into the potions class, we got to see all these really cool types of potions. We got to see um, the Veritasierum. We got to see the Polyjuice potion. And we got to see uh, the Amortentia. So a couple of these we've already seen in the past. Like the Veritasierum we've seen used a couple times. Mm -hmm. Like threatened to use on Harry. And then you know, Snape even said it in Goblet of Fire. Like, I'll, you know, three drops of this and you'll be spilling all your secrets. Talking about when, you know, he got almost got caught on the way back from um, mm -hmm. that little bath he took. So then that was something that's cool to see. That That's actually a newt level potion. The Polyjuice potion, we mentioned that, how it's impressive that Hermione was able to make that in her second year. And it's actually a newt level potion. The Not More Tensha, mm -hmm. that's amazing because they will see actually how powerful that is uh, later in this book. And the Felix Felicis, that's a huge foreshadow of a couple of things that will happen later on. Big stuff, and then obviously the very, very end of the chapter. That's the whole reason the whole book is named Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince. <laughs> we we get introduced to the book that changes Harry's life really for the sixth year, yeah, and then really. when he finds out about it later, he's almost like disgusted with himself. I'll, I won't spoil anything, but it's just <laughs> you know he's he uh, has his time with it. So yeah, I, I had <laughs> yeah. a lot of good stuff in that chapter. Yeah, man, and this next one's huge, and I'm just gonna let you take this whole chapter because this next one, it's yeah. it's it's funny. Like that was a big read there, and then but this one, you know, it's like it just keeps building. This is like the books we're in right now. Like you can't cut detail out because it all plays into each other. Um, and so yeah, I'll let you go ahead and take it in chapter ten here, uh, the House of Gaunt, and uh, I gotta say this was probably one of the most interesting and descriptive and action-packed kind of chapters we've had in the whole series like it was it has like a very creepy cool vibe to it too but yeah i'll let you go ahead and take it from there man sounds good i mean just kind of bullet point before i get to the, the spot where i'll read the chapter in its entirety so mm -hmm. page 194 starting off on the house of gaunt Harry continues to follow the Half-Blood Prince's instructions and continues to be rewarded for it by becoming one of the best in potions class. So, like, this book, like, he's fantastic. Like, he's doing great work, and then Slughorn thinks it's all him. I thought that was pretty cool. 
uh, page one eighty four. Hermione, this is a little quote that I wrote. It's like her getting a, her panties in a water, so to speak. Hermione, <laughs> meanwhile, was resolutely plowing on with what she called the official instructions, but becoming increasingly bad tempered as they yielded poorer results than the prince's. So that was pretty cool. Uh, page 194 here, I'll read the last paragraph to the first paragraph on 195 because it's a bit of a foreshadow. Mm-hmm. So, Harry wondered vaguely who the Half-Blood Prince had been. Although the amount of homework they had been given prevented him from reading the whole of his copy of Advanced Potion Making, he had skimmed through it sufficiently to see that there was barely a page on it on which the Prince had not made additional notes. Not all of them concerned with potion making. Here and there were directions for what looked like spells that the Prince had made up himself. Wanted to read that part there because you guys remember I had like that little interesting fact on Antonin Dolohov and how he potentially created his own spell. Well, that's gonna. This is the this is the book where a lot of self-created spells come to light, and I'll I'll just say that for now. Um, so page one ninety six, Harry goes to Dumbledore's office for his first private lesson. Page one ninety seven, I'll go ahead and and give a little quick thing here uh, before I start pretty much reading the rest of the chapter on page 198 so uh well i've decided that it is time now that you know what prompted lord voldemort to try to kill you 15 years ago for you to be given certain information there was a pause you said at the end of last term you were going to tell me everything said harry it was hard to keep a note of accusation from his voice sir he added and so i did said dumbledore placidly i told you everything i know from this point forth we shall be leaving the firm foundation of fact and journeying together through the murky marshes of memory into thickets and of wildest guesswork. From here on in, Harry, I may be as woefully wrong as Humphrey Belcher, who believed the time was ripe for a cheese cauldron. But you think you're right, said Harry. Naturally I do, but as I have already proven to you, I make mistakes like the next man. In fact, being, forgive me, rather cleverer than most men... My mistakes tend to be correspondingly huger. Sir, said Harry tentatively, what does what you're going to tell me have to do with anything with the prophecy? Will it help me survive? It has a very great deal to do with the prophecy, said Dumbledore, as casually as if Harry had asked him about the next day's weather. And I certainly hope that it will help you survive. Dumbledore got to his feet and walked around the desk, past Harry, who turned eagerly in his seat to watch Dumbledore bend over the cabinet beside the door. When Dumbledore straightened up, he was holding a familiar shallow stone basin etched with ard markings around the rim, and he placed the pen sieve on the desk in front of Harry. So this time, you enter the pen sieve with me, and even more unusually, with permission. So I think this is cool, too, because remember what he thought that they were going to be learning defensive spells or advanced jinxes and hexes that the Death Eaters didn't know and all that. Well, we're kind of pulling out the old Pensieve. Like, this this Pensieve <laughs> has had a lot of important moments throughout the past couple books, so... Definitely. Yeah, I'll go ahead and we'll... This is where I'll uh, go through the end of the chapter <laughs> through, through this here, man. So I gotta... <laughs> Take a little sip here, because we're going to have about uh, 12 pages where we're going to read straight through. Alrighty. Story time with Chase and Josh. That's right, baby. <laughs> Sit back, relax. Yeah, kick your feet up and enjoy this one, because this is a very important memory. Everything about this yeah. is super important. So, where are we going, sir? For a trip down Bob Ogden's memory lane, said Dumbledore, pulling from his pocket a crystal bottle containing a swirling, silvery-white substance. Who was Bob Ogden? 
He was employed by the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, said Dumbledore. He died some time ago, but not before I tracked him down and persuaded him to confide these recollections to me. We are about to accompany him on a visit he made in the course of his duties. If you will stand, Harry. But Dumbledore was having difficulty pulling the stopper out of the crystal bottle. His injured hand seemed stiff and painful. Shall, shall I, sir? No matter, Harry. Dumbledore pointed the wand at the bottle and the cork flew out. Sir, how did you injure your hand? Harry asked again, looking at the blackened fingers with a mixture of revulsion and pity. Now is not the time for that story, Harry. Not yet. We have an appointment with Bob Ogden. <laughs> and Dumbledore <laughs> tipped the silvery contents in the bottle into the pensieve where they swirled and shimmied. Neither liquid or glass. Wow, no, neither liquid or gas. After you, said Dumbledore, gesturing towards the bowl. Harry bent forward, took a deep breath, and plunged his face into the silvery substance. He felt his feet leave the office floor. He was falling, falling through whirling darkness, and then, quite suddenly, he was blinking in dazzling light. Before his eyes adjusted, Dumbledore landed beside him. They were standing in a country lane bordered by high, tangled hedgerows beneath a summer sky as bright and blue as forget-me-not. Some ten feet in front of them stood a short, plump man wearing enormously thick glasses that reduced his eyes to mole-like specks. He was reading a wooden signpost that was sticking out of the brambles on the left-hand side of the road. Harry knew this must be Ogden. He was the only person in sight, and he was also the only one wearing a strange assortment of clothes, so often chosen by inexperienced wizards who would try to look like muggles. In this case, a frock coat and spats over a striped one-piece bathing suit. <laughs> once, time, yeah, once Harry had time to do more than register his bizarre appearance, Ogden had set off at a brisk walk down the lane. Dumbledore and Harry followed. As they passed the wooden sign, Harry looked up at its two arms. The one pointing back at the way they had come read, Great Hangleton, five miles. The arm pointing after Ogden said, Little Hangleton, one mile. And that's, guys, if you guys remember Little Hangleton, that was important in the very first chapter of Gobble of Fire. That's a, that's a town that has already been mentioned, and now we're kind of, like we said, we're kind of going back to the inception of everything, even before where the book starts so anyways they they walked a short way with nothing to see but hedgerows the wide blue sky overhead and the swishing frock coated figure ahead then the lane curved to the left and fell away sloping steeply down a hillside so that they had a sudden unexpected view of the whole valley laid out in front of them harry could see a village undoubtedly little hangleton nestled between two steep hills its church and a graveyard clearly visible across the valley set on the opposite hillside was a handsome manor surrounded by a wide expanse of velvety green lawn. Ogden had broken into a reluctant trot down the steep downward slope. Dumbledore lengthened his stride and Harry hurried to keep up. He thought Little Hangleton must be their final destination and wondered, as he had done on the night they had found Slughorn, why they had to approach her from such a distance. He soon discovered that he was mistaken in thinking that they were going to the village, however. The lane curved to the right, and when they rounded the corner... It was to see the very edge of Ogden's frock coat vanishing through a gap in the hedge. Dumbledore and Harry followed him into a narrow dirt track, bordered by high and wilder hedgerows than those they had left behind. The path was crooked, rocky, and potholed, sloping downhill like the last one, and it seemed to be headed for a patch of dark trees a little below them. Sure enough, the track soon opened up at the copse, and Dumbledore and Harry came to a halt behind Ogden, who had stopped and drawn his wand. Despite the cloud, the sky, the old trees ahead cast deep, dark, cool shadows. And it was a few seconds before Harry's eyes discerned 
the building half hidden amongst the tangle of tree trunks. It seemed to him a very strange location to choose for a house, or else an odd decision to leave the trees growing nearby, blocking all the light in the view of the valley below. He wondered whether it was inhabited. Its walls were mossy, and so many tiles had fallen off the roof that the rafters were invisible in places. Nettles glue all around it, their tips just reaching the windows, which were tiny and thick with grime. Just as he had concluded no one could possibly live there, however, one of the windows was thrown open with a clatter, and a thin trickle of steam or smoke issued from it as though somebody was cooking. Ogden moved forward quietly, and it seemed to Harry rather cautiously. As the dark shadows of the trees slid over him, he stopped again, staring at the front door to which somebody had nailed a dead snake. There was a rustle in the crack, and a man in rags dropped from the nearest tree, landing on his feet right in front of Ogden, who leapt backwards so fast he stood on the tail of his frock coat and stumbled. You're not welcome. The man standing before them had the thick hair, so matted with dirt it could have been any color. Several of his teeth were missing, his eyes were small and dark, and stared in opposite directions. He might have looked comical, but he did not. The effect was frightening, and Harry could not blame Ogden for backing several more paces away before he spoke. Uh, good morning. I'm from the Ministry of Magic. You're not welcome. I'm sorry, I don't understand you, said Ogden nervously. Harry thought Ogden was being extremely dim. The stranger was making himself very clear in Harry's opinion, particularly as he was brandishing a wand in one hand and a short, rather bloody knife in the other. You understand him, I'm sure, Harry, said Dumbledore quietly. Yes, of course, said Harry, slightly nonplussed. Why can't Ogden? But as he his eyes found the dead sneak on the door again, he suddenly understood. He's speaking Parseltongue? Very good, said Dumbledore, nodding and smiling. The man in rags was now advancing on Ogden, knife in one hand, wand in the other. Now look, Ogden began, but too late. There was a bang, and Ogden was on the ground clutching his nose while nasty yellowish goo squirted from between his fingers. Morphine, said a loud voice. An elderly man had come running out of the cottage, banging the door behind them so that the dead snake swung pathetically. And this man was shorter than the first and oddly proportioned. His shoulders were very broad, his arms overlong, with, with his bright brown eyes, short scrubby hair, and wrinkled face, it gave him the look of a powerful, aged monkey. He came to a halt beside the man with a knife, who was now cackling with laughter at the sight of Ogden on the ground. Ministry, is it? said the older man, looking down at Ogden. Correct, said Ogden, angrily dabbing his face, and I take it you are Mr. Gaunt? That's right, said Gaunt. Got in the face, did he? Yes, he did, snapped Ogden. Should have made your presence known, shouldn't you? said Gaunt aggressively. This is private property. Can't just walk in here and not expect my son to defend himself. Defend himself against what, man? said Ogden, clambering back to his feet. Busybodies, intruders, muggles, and filth. Ogden pointed his wand at his own nose, which was still issuing large amounts of what looked like yellow pus, and the flow stopped at once. Mr. Gaunt spoke out of the corner of his mouth to morphine. Get in the house. Don't argue. This time ready for it, Harry recognized Parseltongue. Even while he could understand what was being said, he distinguished the weird hissing noise that was all Ogden could hear. Morphine seemed to be on the point of disagreeing, but when his father cast him a threatening look, he changed his mind, lumbering away to the cottage with an odd rolling gait, slamming the front door behind them so that the snake swung sadly again. It's your son I'm here to see, Mr. Gaunt, said Ogden, as he mopped the last of the pus from the front of his coat. That was morphine, wasn't it? Ah, right, that was morphine, said the old man differently. Are you pure blood? He asked, suddenly aggressive. It's neither here nor there, said Ogden coldly. 
and Harry felt his respect for Ogden rise. Apparently, Gaunt rather felt differently. He squinted into Ogden's face and muttered, in what clearly was supposed to be an offensive tone, Now come to think of it, I've seen noses like yours down in the village. I don't doubt it if your son's been let loose on them, said Ogden. Perhaps we could continue this discussion inside. Inside? Yes, Mr. Gaunt, I have already told you I'm here about morphine. We've sent an owl. I have no use for owls, said Gaunt. I don't open letters. Well, then you can hardly complain about getting no warning of visitors, said Ogden tartly. I am here following a serious breach of wizarding law, which occurred here in the hours of this morning. All right, all right, all right, bellowed Gaunt. Come in the bleeding house, then, for much good it would do you. And the house seemed to contain three tiny rooms. The door led off the main room, which served as a kitchen and living room combined. Morphine was sitting in a filthy armchair beside the smoking fire, twisting a live adder between his thick fingers and crooning at it softly in parcel tongue. Hissy, hissy, little snakey, slither on the floor. You be good to Morphine or he'll nail you to the door. <laughs> there was a scuffling <laughs> so sound in the corner here, eh? <laughs> beside the open windows, and Harry realized that there was somebody else in the room. A girl whose ragged gray dress was the exact color of the dirt stone wall behind her. She was standing beside a steaming pot on a grimy black stove and was fiddling around with a shelf of squalid-looking pots and pans above it. Her hair was lank and dull, and she had a plain, pale, rather heavy face. Her eyes, like her brother's, stared in opposite directions. She looked a little cleaner than the two men, but Harry thought that she had never seen, he had never seen a more defeated-looking person. "'It's my daughter, Merope,' said Gaunt grudgingly, as Ogden looked inquiringly toward her. "'Good morning,' said Ogden. She did not answer, but with a frightened glance at her father, turned back to the room and continued shifting the pots on the shelf behind her. "'Well, Mr. Gaunt,' said Ogden, "'to get straight to the point, we have reason to believe that your son Morphine performed magic in front of a muggle light last night.' There was a deafening clang. Merope had dropped one of the pots. "'Pick it up!' Gaunt bellowed at her. "'That's it. Grub on the floor like some filthy muggle. What's your wand for, you useless sack of muck?' Mr. Gaunt, please, said Ogden in a shocked voice as Maraby, who had already picked up the pot, flushed blotchly scarlet, lost her grip on the pot again, drew her wand shakily from her pocket, pointed it at the pot, muttered a hastily inaudible spell that caused the pot to shoot across the floor away from her and hit the opposite wall and crack in two. Morphine let out a mad cackle of laughter, and Gaunt screamed, Mend it, you pointless lump! Mend it! Maraby stumbled across the room, but before she had time to raise her wand again, Ogden had lifted his own and firmly said, Reparo, and the pot mended itself instantly. Gaunt looked for a moment as though he was going to shout Ogden, but seemed to think better of it. Instead, he jeered at his daughter. Lucky the nice man from the ministry is here, isn't it? Perhaps he'll take you off my hands. Perhaps he doesn't mind dirty squibs. <laughs> Without looking at anybody or thanking Ogden, Merope picked up the pot and returned it, hands trembling to its shelf. She then stood quite still, her back against the wall between the filthy window and the stove, as though she wished for nothing more than to sink into the stone and vanish. Mr. Gaunt, Ogden began again, as I've said, the reason for my visit, I heard you the first time, snapped Gaunt, and so what? Morphine gave a muggle a bit of what was coming to him. What about it, then? Morphine has broken wizarding law, said Ogden sternly. Morphine has broken wizarding law, Gaunt imitated Ogden's voice, making it pompous and sing-song. Morphine cackled again. He taught a filthy muggle a lesson. That's illegal now, is it? Yes, said Ogden. I'm afraid it is. 
He pulled out uh, from an inside pocket a small scroll of parchment and unrolled it. What's that then? His sentence? Said Gaunt, his voice rising angrily. It's the summons to the ministry for a hearing. Summons? Summons? Who do you think you are, summoning my son anywhere? I'm the head of magical law enforcement squad, said Ogden. And you think we're scum, do you? Screamed Gaunt, advancing on Ogden now with a dirty yellow nail fingered pointing at his chest. Scum who will come running when the ministry tells him to? Do you know who you're talking to, you filthy little mudblood? Do you? I was under the impression that I was speaking to Mr. Gaunt, said Ogden, looking wary but standing his ground. That's right, roared Gaunt, and for a moment, Harry thought Gaunt was making an obscene rude hand gesture, but then realized he was showing Ogden the ugly black stone ring he was wearing on his middle finger, waving it before Ogden's eyes. See this? See this? You know what it is? You know where it came from? Centuries it's been in our family. That's how far back we go. And pure blood all the way. Know how much I've been offered for this? With the Peveril coat of arms engraved in the stone? I have really no idea, said Ogden, blinking as the ring sailed within an inch of his nose. It's quite beside the point, Mr. Gaunt. Your son is committed with a howl of rage. Gaunt ran towards his daughter. For a split second, Harry thought he was going to throttle her as his hand threw to her throat. Next moment, he was dragging her toward Ogden by a gold chain around her neck. See this, he bellowed at Ogden, shaking the heavy gold locket at him while Merope spluttered and gasped for breath. I see it, I see it, said Ogden hastily. Slytherins, yelled Gaunt. Saddlezar Slytherins. We're his last living descendants. What do you say to that, eh? Mr. Gaunt, your daughter, said Ogden in alarm, but Gaunt already released Merope and she staggered away from him back to her corner, massaging her neck and gulping for air. So, said Gaunt triumphantly, as though he had just proved a complicated point beyond all possible dispute, don't you go talking to us as if we're dirt on your shoes. Generations of pure blood, wizards all, that's more than you can say, I don't doubt. And he spat at the floor uh, on Ogden's feet. Morphine cackled again. Merope, huddled beside the window, her head bowed and her face hidden by her long hair, said nothing. Mer Mr. Gaunt, said Ogden doggedly, I'm afraid that neither your ancestors nor mine have anything to do with the matter in hand. I am here because of morphine, and morphine and the muggle he accosted late last night. Our information, he glanced down at the scroll of parchment, is that morphine performed a jinx or a hex on the said muggle, causing him to erupt in highly painful hives. Morphine giggled. Be quiet, boy, snarled Gaunt in parcel tongue, and morphine fell silent once again. And so what if he did, said Gaunt defiantly to Ogden. I expect you wiped the muggle's filthy face for him and then his memory to boot. That's hardly the point, is it, Mr. Gaunt? This was an unprovoked attack on a defenseless... Ah, you had you marked as a muggle lover the moment I saw you, sneered Gaunt, and he spat on the floor again. This discussion's getting us nowhere, <laughs> said Ogden firmly. It is clear from your son's attitude that he feels no remorse for his actions. He glanced down at the scroll again. Morphine will attend a hearing on the 14th of September to answer the charges of using magic in front of a muggle and causing harm and distress to that same muggle. Ogden broke off. The jingling, clopping hands of horses and loud, laughing voices were drifting in through the open window. Apparently, the winding lane to the village passed very close to the copse where the house stood. Gaunt froze, listening, his eyes wide. Morphine hissed and turned his face towards the sound, his expression hungry. Merope raised her head. Her face, Harry saw, was stark white. My God, what an eyesore, rang out a girl's voice as clearly audible through the open windows as she stood in the room beside them. Couldn't your father have that hovel cleared away, Tom? It's not ours, said a young man's voice. Everything on the other side of the valley belongs to us, but that cottage belongs to an old tramp called Gaunt and his children. 
The sun's quite mad. You should hear some of the stories they tell in the village. The girl laughed, and jingling, clopping noises were going louder and louder. Morphine made to get out of his chair. Keep your seat, said his father warningly in parcel tongue. Tom, said the girl's voice again, now so close that they were clearly right beside the house. I may be wrong, but somebody has nailed a snake to the door. Good lord, you're right, said the man's voice. That'll be the sun. I told you, he's not right in the head. Don't look at it, Cecilia, darling. The jingling and coppling sounds were now growing fainter again. Darling, whispered Morphine and Parseltom, looking at his sister. Darling, he called you, so he wouldn't have you anyways. Merope was so white, Harry felt sure that she was going to faint. What's that? said Gaunt sharply, also in Parseltongue, looking from his son to his daughter. What did you say, Morphine? She likes looking at that muggle, said Morphine, a vicious expression on his face as he stared at his sister, who now looked terrified. Always in the garden when he passes, peering through the hedge at him, isn't she? And last night, Merope shook his head, her head jerkily, imploring, but Morphine went on ruthlessly. Hanging out of the window, waiting for him to ride home, wasn't she? Hanging out of the window to get a look at a muggle, said Gaunt quietly. All three of Gaunt's seemed to have forgotten Ogden, who was looking both bewildered and irritated at this renewed outbreak of incomp incomprehensible hissing and rasping. Is it true? said Gaunt in a deadly voice, advancing a step or two towards a terrified girl. My daughter, pure-blooded descendant of Salazar Slytherin, hankering after a filthy, dirt-veined muggle? Merope shook her head frantically, pressing herself into the wall, unapparently, apparently unable to speak. But I got him, father, cackled Morphine. I got him as he went by. He didn't look so pretty with hives all over him, did he, Merope? You disgusting little squib. You filthy little blood traitor roared Gaunt, losing control, his hands closed around his daughter's throat. Both Harry and Ogden yelled no at the same time. Ogden raised his wand and cried, Releasio! And Gaunt was thrown backwards away from his daughter, tripped over a chair and fell flat on his back. With a roar of rage, Morphine leapt out of his chair and ran at Ogden, brandishing his bloody knife and firing hexes indiscriminately from his wand. Ogden ran for his life. Dumbledore indicated they ought to follow, and Harry obeyed. Merope's screams echoed in his ears. Ogden hurled up the path and erupted on the main lane, his arms over his head where he collided with the glossy chestnut horse ridden by a very handsome, dark-haired young man. Both he and the pretty girl riding beside them on the gray horse roared at laughter at the sight of Ogden, who bounced off the horse's flank and set off again, his frock coat flying, covered from head to foot in dust, running pell-mell up the lane. "'Think that will do, Harry,' said Dumbledore, and he took Harry's by the elbow and tugged. The next moment... They were both soaring weightlessly through the darkness until they landed squarely on their feet back in the twilight office. What happened to the girl at the cottage, said Harry at once, as Dumbledore lit extra candles with a flick of his wand. Merope, or whatever her name was. Oh, she survived, said Dumbledore, reseating himself behind the desk, indicating that Harry should sit down too. Ogden apparated back to the ministry and returned with reinforcements within 15 minutes. Morphine and his father attempted to fight, but both were overpowered, removed from the cottage, and subsequently convicted by the Wizengamot. Morphine, who already had a record of muggle attacks, was sentenced to three years in Azkaban. Marvolo, who had injured several Ministry employees in addition to Ogden, received six months. Marvolo, repeated Harry wonderly. That's right, said Dumbledore, smiling in approval. I'm glad to see you're keeping up. That old man was Voldemort's grandfather. Yes. Marvolo... His son Morphine and his daughter Merope were the last of the Gaunts, a very ancient wizarding family noted for a vein of instability and violence that flourished through the generations due 
to their habit of marrying with their own cousins. Lack of sense coupled with a great disliking for grandeur meant that the family gold was squandered several generations before Marlowe was born. He, as you saw, was left in squalor and poverty and with a very nasty temper, a fantastic amount of arrogance and pride, and a couple of family heirlooms that he treasured just as much as his son and rather more than his daughter. So Merope, said Harry leaning forward in his chair, staring at Dumbledore. Merope was... Sir, does that mean... She was Voldemort's mother? It does, said Dumbledore. And it also so happens that we had a glimpse of Voldemort's father. I wonder whether you noticed. The Muggle Morphine attacked? The man on the horse? Very good indeed, said Dumbledore beaming. Yes, that was Tom Riddle Sr., the handsome Muggle who used to go riding past the Gaunt Cottage and for whom Merope Gaunt cherished his secret burning passion. And they ended up married? Said Harry in disbelief, unable to imagine two people less likely to fall in love. I think you are forgetting, said Dumbledore, that Merope was a witch. I do not believe that her magical powers appeared to their best advantage when she was being terrorized by her father. But once Marvolo and Morphine were safely in Azkaban, once she was alone and free for the first time in her life, I'm sure she was able to give full reign to her abilities and plot her escape from the desperate life that she had led for 18 years. Can you not think of any measure Merope could have taken to make Tom Riddle forget his muggle companion and fall in love with her instead? The Imperious Curse, Harry suggested, or a love potion? Very good. Personally, I am inclined to think that she is a love potion. I am sure it would have seemed more romantic to her, and I do not think it would have been very difficult some hot day when Riddle was riding alone to persuade him to take a drink of water. In any case, within a few months of the scene we have just witnessed, the village of Little Hangleton enjoyed a tremendous scandal. You can't imagine the gossip it caused when the squire's son ran off with the tramp's daughter, Merope. But the villagers' shock was nothing to Marvelo's. He returned from Azkaban expecting to find his daughter dutifully awaiting to return with a hot meal ready on the table. Instead, he found a clear inch of dust, a note of her farewell, explaining what she had done. And from all that I'm able to discover, he never mentioned her name or existence again from that time forth. The shock of her desertion may have contributed to his early death, or perhaps he had simply never learned to feed himself. Azkaban had greatly weakened Marvelo and he did not live to see Morphine return to the cottage. And Merope? She, she died, didn't she? Wasn't Voldemort brought up in an orphanage? She did indeed. We must do a certain amount of guessing here, although I do not think it is difficult to deduce what happened. You see, within a few months of the runaway marriage, Tom Riddle reappeared at the manor house in Little Hangleton without his wife. The rumor flew around the neighborhood that he was talking, of course, of being hoodwinked and taken in. What he meant, I am sure, is that he had been under an enchantment that had now lifted... Though I dare say he did not use those precise words for be fear of being thought insane. When he heard what he was saying, however, the villagers guessed that Merope had lied to Tom Riddle, pretending that she was going to have his baby, and that they had married for this reason. But she did have his baby. Not until a year after they were married. Tom Riddle left her while she was still pregnant. What went wrong, said Harry? Why did the love potion stop working? Again, this is guesswork, said Dumbledore, but I believe that Merope, who was deeply in love with her husband, could not bear to continue enslaving him by magical means. I believe that she made the choice to stop giving him the potion. Perhaps, besotted as she was, she had convinced herself that he would by now have fallen in love with her in return. Perhaps she thought he would stay for the baby's sake. If so, she was wrong on both accounts. He left her, never saw her again, and never troubled to discover what became of his son. The sky outside was inky black, and the lamps in Dumbledore's office seemed to glow more brightly than before. I think that will do for tonight, Harry, said Dumbledore after a moment or two. Yes, sir, said Harry. He got to his feet, but did not leave. 
Sir, is it important to know all this about Voldemort's past? Very important, I think, said Dumbledore. And it's got something to do with the prophecy? It has everything to do with the prophecy. Right, said Harry, a little confused, but reassured all the same. He turned to go, then another question occurred to him, and he turned back again. Sir, am I allowed to tell Ron and Hermione everything you've told me? Dumbledore considered this for a moment, then said, Yes, I think Mr. Weasley and Miss Granger have proved themselves trustworthy. But Harry, I am going to ask you to ask them not to repeat any of this to anybody else. It would not be a good idea if word got around how much I know or suspect about Lord Voldemort's secrets. No, sir, I'll make sure it's just Ron and Hermione. Good night. He turned away, and it was almost at the door when he saw it, sitting on one of the little spindle-legged tables that supported so many frail-looking silver instruments, was an old, ugly gold ring set with a large, cracked black stone. Sir, said Harry, staring at it. That ring? Yes, said Dumbledore. You were wearing it when we visited Professor Slughorn that night. So I was, said Dumbledore as he agreed. But isn't it, sir, isn't it the same ring Marvel Gaunt showed Ogden? Dumbledore bowed his head. The very same. But how come, have you always had it? No. I acquired it very recently, said Dumbledore, a few days before I came to fetch you, from your aunt and uncle's, in fact. That would be around the time you injured your hand, then, sir. Around that time, yes, Harry. Harry hesitated. Dumbledore was smiling. Sir, how exactly? Too late, Harry! You shall hear the story another time. Good night. <laughs> Good night, sir. And that closes out of chapter 10 here. The reason why I had to read all of that is because of some of the most important foreshadows that we'll see. We get a deep look into Voldemort's past going even before Voldemort was born. We see what yeah. his grandfather was like. You saw how like they were described as like they were kind of grotesque in a way. Their eyes were looking in opposite directions because of all the inbreeding. You know, like it's described Merope kind of as a squib, but then like maybe not. Like and that's kind of like a plot hole thing that I'm like looking at later on that we when you go into it. But then we these objects though, these objects specifically are gonna play a really big role. There was Remember he grabbed the necklace on her on Merope's neck and showed Ogden and showed him that ring in front of his finger. And now he realized that ring has a big crack in it now and Dumbledore has the ring. So there's a lot of really big foreshadowing things that are going to come from these lessons that Dumbledore's showing Harry. I don't want to give anything away. But that there is a lot in there that was necessary information, especially when you talk about the little regard that they had as wizards for muggles. Like he like his dad, like Marvolo, was like almost like happy that his son was attacking the Muggle. And on top of that, his dad's name is Marvolo, and if you guys remember what uh Lord Voldemort's real name is, it's Tom Marvolo Riddle. So with that being said, I'm gonna turn it over to Chase to give his thoughts on that chapter and I'll let him take it away and get us into chapter eleven. Yeah, man, it's just so detailed. Uh like when you when you it reminded me of something we're not there yet but like uh not giving ideas of names but they go to a place that has that whole same similar vibe in the next book so it, it was yeah uh it was definitely um a detailed one but and it kind of gives you a glimpse into you know who is really the riddles as far as like how they grew up and stuff and really kind of a uh you know definitely has that glimpse like into their past there um and it, it's all starting to make more sense now now that everything's gonna come into place but 
yeah, I mean, it was just action-packed, and it was brutal the way their father was, like, treating them, especially, like, the women <laughs> was awful, just absolutely terrible. Um, yeah, but so moving on to Chapter 11 here, so Hermione's helping hand, so Quidditch is coming back, man. That's always good stuff, so I'm stoked for that in this chapter. Uh, just to kind of get us started off here, so Harry's best subject has become potions. So remember how he wasn't the best at it before? Well, now due to the Half-Blood Prince, <laughs> he is now a stud at potions, and that is his best subject. Um, and then you kind of, uh, I was going to let you kind of check take this section because it deals with non-verbal spells that we were talking about. Um, it does have here, it talks about, you know, nonverbal spells are very expected now in defense of yeah, <laughs> against the dark That's arts. so weird. Like, the, we were talking about how much, like, you know, advanced wizards are the ones that do nonverbals when we were having our little get-together that one day. But, like, now they're just expected of 16-year-olds. Like, they, they uh, all of their spells now that they're doing, it's almost like if you take Spanish class, if you get to a certain level... Like, they no longer speak English in Spanish class if they only speak Spanish and they're expected to only speak it in there. So, like, now they've gotten to that point with the, the spells. Like, now everything's going to be nonverbal. So, that's pretty crazy, man. Even for these kids, these teenagers, learning these nonverbal spells as, like, they're expected. Right. Yeah, it's it's just wild. Um, as far as then from here, and I'll let you kind of take it right back over, but uh, Hagrid is... Uh, Kind of putting on a little pouting showcase, feeling the, you know, as they say in Wedding Crashers, do do not sulk. It draws attention to yourself in a negative way. <laughs> That's what our boy Hagrid's doing over here. Yeah, so he stopped, like, joining the staff tables for lunches and everything. Um, and even just visiting uh, the Golden Trio, you know, Harry, Ron, and Hermione, and and uh, we find out a little bit more of what he's going through there. But he's definitely, this is the moment where they're noticing, like, he's definitely acting a little sketchy, which we find out why. But, you know, he needs to pull himself together. Pull yourself <laughs> together, man. <laughs> definitely. Uh, and I'll just say, uh, I'll let you take it back over from here. But I'll just say this and I'll let you take it back over. But Ron mentions that Quidditch tryouts are going to be uh, in the morning. So they're all stoked for that. And remember, Harry is the Quidditch captain now. So he's organizing all this. Um, and then I did think this was cool. The Augmenti charm uh, is what they were assigned in Flitwick's class. So just interesting stuff there. But yeah, going with Quidditch, man, I'll let you take it, take us over from there, brother. Perfect. That actually makes a lot of sense because like this, this chapter itself is all bullet points, and I'm going to turn it over to mm -hmm. you for this next chapter in 12 because you got that really good stuff, uh, you know, that interesting <laughs> fact you've been sitting on for, like, you know, I think about a month, honestly. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's cool. Like, actually, that's where exactly why of where I am at here is, you know, Hagrid is ignoring Ron, Harry, and Hermione. They're, he's obviously upset they didn't continue care of magical creatures, but what you just left off with, Ron mentions they're supposed to be practicing the Augmenti charm. Well, that's a big foreshadow. That spell comes up real later and in a very key and crucial moment. I'll say that. Um, but yeah, so I'm going to go ahead on page 219, take a couple things here. I'm going to read from uh, 
up until like you know, there's like basically this full page. So it goes, uh, "Oh come on, Harry," said Hermione, suddenly impatient. It's it's not Quidditch that's popular. It's you. You've never been more interesting, and frankly, you've never been more fanciable. And Ron gagged on a large piece of kipper. Hermione spared him a look at the same before turning back to Harry. Everyone knows now that you've been telling the truth, don't they? The whole wizarding world has had to admit that you were right about Voldemort being back and that you really have fought him twice in the last two years and escaped both times. Now they're calling you the chosen one. Well, come on, can't you see why people are fascinated by you? Harry is finding the Great Hall very hot all of a sudden, even though the ceiling was still looked cold and rainy. And you've been through all that persecution from the ministry, trying to make you out like you were unstable and a liar. You can still see the marks on the back of your hands where that evil woman made you right with your own blood. But you stuck to your story anyways. Well, you can still see where the brains got a hold of me at the ministry. Look, said Ron, shaking back his sleeves. And it doesn't hurt that you've grown about a foot over the summer either. Hermione finished ignoring Ron. I'm tall, said Ron inconsequentially. Like, yeah, Ron's trying to, like, sit there and compare, like, come on, man, like, don't leave my, don't leave me out here like that. I thought that was pretty funny. Like, how, like, just, like, how Harry said, Hermione's telling Harry everyone's going to start liking him now, and Ron's trying to keep pace, like, giving him his, like, version of stories and stuff, too, yeah. so. Going on to uh, page 220, there's new copies of Advanced Potion Making. They finally arrive from Flourish and Blots, and instead of Harry, like, keeping the new copy, he simply removes the cover from each, and like swaps the covers so like the Half Blood Prince's uh, book looks like the brand new one, and the brand new one looks like the old tattered book. So I thought that was, you know, he swaps them, giving the illusion that he's using the brand new one. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, page two twenty one, Stan Shunpike was arrested on suspicion of being a Death Eater. That's kind of messed up, especially since we know Stan Shunpike is kind of like a goofball. He's not really no one can really take him seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, Page 221, Hermione thinks the Ministry arrested him because they went. They want to look as if they're doing something useful in response to all the catastrophes. She's like, well, they got to look like they're doing something. But anyways, and what you learn on page 222, that the Patil twins, that their parents want them to go home. That they want to pull them out of school. And Eloise Midgen, she has already been withdrawn from the school. So people, like, they, things are getting real serious, man. Like, like uh, yeah. and, you know, because then Ron and Hermione, or Harry are like, well... Why the heck would they do that? Like, Dumbledore's here. They've got to be safer with Dumbledore. We've got him. Like, you know, why would they think their kids would be safer out in the world? And Hermione has, like, a hunch that Dumbledore has been leaving the school, which is a big foreshadow. Right. Which is pretty cool. Uh, Hannah Abbott, this is really sad. She was taken out of her biology class and told that her mother was found dead. And they haven't seen Hannah since. That really sucks. Um... I'll go ahead and, and get this this part here too, on page two twenty two. I'm gonna go ahead and read uh, this little paragraph here. It says uh, <laughs> what did surprise him. Where are you? Where in the world did you go? I just had this thing. Are Anyways, you right? On page two twenty two, halfway through the oh halfway through the last paragraph. Okay. So I, I actually cut the paragraph in half. It says what did surprise him was that when Ron drew level with them, Parvati suddenly nudged Lavender, who looked around and gave Ron a wide smile. Ron blinked at her, then returned the smile uncertainly, and his walk instantly became something of a strut. Harry resisted the temptation to laugh, remembering that Ron had refrained from laughing at him when Malfoy broke Harry's nose. Hermione, however, looked cold and distant all the way down to the stadium through the cool misty drizzle, departed to find a place in the stands without wishing Ron good luck at all. 
So there's a little foreshadow of some stuff going on there. Uh, that was pretty important. Now, Harry starts holding the Quidditch trials, right? Uh, page 223, he, he begins the Quidditch trials. Immediately, that Cormac McLaggen guy from the Slug Club kind of shows up thinking he's a bee's knees, thinking Harry's just going to let him on the team because they were both part of like the Slug Club on the train. And uh, <laughs> Anyways, on page 224, just because you know, that, what that is isn't important to the storyline, but page 224, the chasers are chosen. The three chasers that are chosen are Katie Bell. She had a great tryout, he said. A new girl named Demelza Robbins, which we haven't heard before. And then Ginny Weasley. So those are the three chasers. And it actually says in the, on that page in 224 that Ginny mm-hmm. outflew everyone. So yeah. Ginny is actually really talented at Quidditch. Now on page 225, Jimmy Peaks and Richie Coots are chosen as beaters. And they saved the keeper trials for last. Uh, <laughs> I'll go ahead and kind of show how that kind of turns out here because that's <laughs> going to be important. So on page 225... None of the first five applicants saved more than two goals apiece. To Harry's great disappointment, though, Cormac McLaggen saved four penalties out of five. On the last one, however, he shot off in the completely wrong direction. The crowd laughed and booed, and McLaggen returned to the ground, grinding his teeth. Ron looked ready to pass out as he mounted his clean sweep 11. Good luck, cried a voice from the stands. Harry looked around expecting to see Hermione, but it was Lavender Brown. He would have liked to have hidden his face in his hands, but as she did a moment later, but thought that as captain, he ought to have a slightly more grit. And so he turned to watch Ron do his first trial. But he did not need to worry. Ron saved one, two, three, four, five penalties in a row. Delighted and resisting joining in on the cheers of the crowd with difficulty, Harry turned to McLaggen to tell him that most unfortunately, Ron had beaten him only to find McLaggen's red face inches from his own, and he stepped back hastily. So, now we got this, and this kind of shows how much of a bad loser he is. You wouldn't want that guy in his team anyways, but it's very peculiar circumstances in which uh, Cormac McLaggen like, flew off in the wrong direction. So, wonder what happened there, and then we'll, we'll, we'll find out here very, very shortly. But, uh, yeah, so I'm actually going to go ahead and and we'll get into that part here. So, we're going uh, continuing from that. So, his sister didn't really try, said McLaggen menacingly. There was a vein pulsing in his temple like the one Harry had often admired in Uncle Vernon's. She gave an easy save. Rubbish, said Harry coldly. That was the one he nearly missed. McLaggen took a step near Harry, who stood his ground this time. Give me another go. No. You've had your go. You saved four. Ron saved five. Ron's keeper. He won a fair and square. Get out of my way. He thought for a moment that McLaggen might punch him, but he contented himself with an ugly grimace and stormed away, growling what sounded like threats to thin air. Harry turned around to find his new team beaming at him. Well done. You flew really well. You did brilliantly, Ron. This time it really was Hermione running towards them from the stands. Harry saw Lavender walking off the pitch, arm in arm with Pravati, a rather grumpy expression on her face. Ron looked extremely pleased with himself, and even taller than usual as he grinned at the team and at Hermione. After fixing the time of their first practice for the following Thursday, Harry, Ron, and Hermione bade goodbye to the rest of the team and headed off towards Hagrid's. A watery sun was trying to break through the clouds now and stop drizzling, and Harry felt extremely hungry and hoped there would be food at Hagrid's. I thought I was going to miss that fourth penalty, Ron was saying happily. Tricky shot from Demel's, did you see? Had a bit of a spin on it. 
Yes, yes, you're magnificent, said Hermione, looking amused. Better than that McLagan, anyway, said Ron in a highly satisfied voice. <laughs> Do you see him lumbering off in the wrong direction on the fifth? Looks like he'd been confounded. To Harry's surprise, Hermione turned a very deep shade of pink at these words. Ron noticed nothing. He was too busy describing each of his other penalties in loving detail. So that's a little, uh, we're starting to kind of see what was happening a little, in that, well, maybe a little <laughs> assistance. Maybe Hermione gave a little, uh, laid up an assist for Ron to dunk it down. And anyways, continue on there. <laughs> and then anyways, page 227, Ron, Harry, and Hermione go down to see Hagrid, but Hagrid's upset with them. And just to kind of finish things off so I can let Chase get into to chapter 12, I'll go ahead and read a couple things that are really important here. So I'm going to read for, uh, yes, so... Fang was jumping at Hermione and Ron, attempting to lick their ears. Hagrid stood and looked at them, all for a split second, then turned and strode into his cabin and slammed the door behind them in their faces. Like, Hagrid's never treated Ron, Harry, and Hermione like that. He just slammed his door in their face. Yeah. Oh, dear, said Hermione, looking stricken. Don't worry about it, said Harry grimly. He walked over the door and knocked loudly. Hagrid, open up. We want to talk with you. There was no sound from within. If you don't open the door, we'll blast it open, Harry said, pulling out his wand. Harry, said Hermione, sounding shocked. <laughs> you can't possibly. Yes, I can, said Harry. Stand back. But before he could say anything else, the door flew open again, as Harry knew it would. And there stood Hagrid, glowering down at him, looking... Despite the flowery apron, positively alarming. I am a teacher, he wrote at Harry. A teacher, Potter. How dare you threaten to break down my door? I'm sorry, sir, said Harry, emphasizing the last word as he stowed his wand inside his robes. Harry looked stunned. Since when have you called me sir? Since when have you called me Potter? Ah, very clever, growled Hagrid. Very amusing. That's me. Outsmarted, isn't it? All right, come on in then, you ungrateful little... Mumbling darkly, he stood back to let them pass, and Hermione scurried in after Harry, looking frightened. Well, said Harry grumpily as Harry, Ron, and Hermione sat down around the enormous wooden table, Fang laying his head immediately on Harry's knee and drooling all over his robes. What's this? Feeling sorry for me? Wrecking on lonely or something? No, said Harry. Wanted to see ya. <laughs> We've missed you, said Hermione tremulously. Missed me, have you? Yeah, right. Stomped all around, brewing up the tea in his enormous copper kettle, muttering all the while, and finally he slammed down three bucket-sized mugs of mahogany brown tea in front of them, and a plate of his rock cakes. Harry was hungry enough even for Hagrid's cooking, and he took one at once. Hagrid, said Hermione timidly, when he joined them at the table and started peeling potatoes with a brutality that suggested that each tubber had done a great personal wrong. <laughs> we really <laughs> wanted to carry on with care of magical creatures, you know. Harry gave an, or Hagrid gave a great snort. Harry rather thought some bogeys landed on the potatoes, and he was inwardly thankful that they were not staying for dinner. We did, but none of us could fit it in our schedules. Yeah, right, said Hagrid again. There's a funny squelching sound, and they all looked around, and Hermione let out a tiny shriek, and Ron leapt out of the seat and hurried around the table, away from the large barrel standing in the corner that they had only just noticed would look like a foot-long maggot, slimy white and writhing. What are they, Hagrid? Said Harry, trying to sound interested rather than revolted, but putting down his rock cake all the same. Strike rubs, said Hagrid. And they grow into... Said Ron apprehensively. They won't grow into nothing, said Hagrid. I gotta feed him to Aragog. 
Without warning, he burst into tears. Hagrid, cried Hermione, leaping up from her, hurrying around the table to avoid the barrel of maggots and putting an arm around his shaking shoulders. What is it? It's him, gulped Hagrid, his beetle black eyes streaming as he mopped his face with his apron. It's Aragog. I think he's dying. He got ill over the summer and he's not getting better. I don't know what I'll do if he... If he... We've been together so long. Hermione patted Hagrid's shoulders, looking at a complete loss for anything to say. And Harry knew how she felt. He had known Hagrid to present a vicious baby dragon with a teddy bear, seen him croon over giant scorpions with suckers and stingers, attempt to reason with his brutal giant of a half-brother, but this was perhaps the most incomprehensible of all his monster fancies was the gigantic talking spider Aragog, who dwelled deep in the Forbidden Forest, and which he and Ron had only narrowly escaped four years previously. Is there... Anything we can do? Hermione asked, ignoring Ron's frantic grimaces and head shakings. Don't think there is, Hermione, choked Hagrid, attempting to stem the flood of his tears. See, the rest of the tribe, Aragod's family, they're getting a bit funny now that he's ill. A bit restive. Yeah, I think we saw that side of them, said Ron in an undertone. I don't reckon it'd be safe for anyone but me to go near the colony at the moment. Hagrid finished, blowing his nose hard on his apron, looking up. Thanks for offering, Hermione. It means a lot. After that, the atmosphere lightened considerably, for although Harry nor Ron had shown any inclination to go and feed giant grubs to a murderous gargantuan spider, Hagrid seemed to take it for granted that they would have liked to have done, and he became his usual self once more. I always knew you'd find it hard to squeeze me into your timetables, he said gruffly, even if you applied for time-turners. We couldn't have done, said Hermione. We smashed the entire stock of ministry time-turners when we were there last summer. It was in the Daily Prophet. Yeah, all right then, said Hagrid. There's no way you could have done it. I'm sorry, I've been, you know... I've just been worried about Aragog, and I did wonder whether Professor Grubbly Plank had been teaching you, at which all three of them stated categorically and untruthfully that Professor Grubbly Plank, who had substituted for Hagrid a few times, was a dreadful teacher, with the result that by the time Hagrid waved them off the premises, he looked quite cheerful. I'm starving said Harry once the door had closed behind him and they were hurrying through the dark, deserted grounds. He had abandoned the rock cake after the ominous cracking noise from his back teeth. And I've got that detention with Snape tonight. I haven't got much time for dinner. And as they came out of the castle, they spotted Cormac McLaggen entering the Great Hall. It took him two attempts to get through the door. He ricocheted off the frame on the first attempt. Ron merely goffed gloatingly and strode into the hall after him, but Harry caught Hermione's arm and held her back. What? said Hermione defensively. If you ask me, said Harry quietly, McLaggen looks like he was confronted this morning, and he was standing right in front of where you were sitting. Hermione blushed. Oh, all right then, I did it, she whispered. But you should have heard the way he was talking about Ron and Ginny. Anyways, he's got a nasty temper. You saw how he reacted when he didn't get in. You wouldn't have wanted someone like that on your team. No, I suppose that's true. But wasn't that dishonest, Hermione? I mean, you're a prefect, aren't you? Oh, be quiet, she snapped as he smirked. So, thought that was pretty great. Then the last thing here I just have on page 233 before I uh, yeah, kind of turn it over to Chase to close us out of this chapter and get into the next one is Slughorn wants Harry and Hermione to join him for dinner and he completely ignores Ron as if Ron's not there. And so Harry tells him he can't because he's got detention with Snape. And what's Slughorn do? He says he's going to have a word with Snape about postponing the detention again. Imagine, like, this guy just <laughs> took over Snape's class as the potions master, 
Like, all the, like, trying to make friends with all the students, they all love him, and Snape, you know, he doesn't do anything to make friends with anybody. And this guy <laughs> thinks that he's got, like, the clout to go up to Snape and be like, hey, let's talk, Snape. Can I just get Harry for tonight, and you can make him do a detention another time? And we'll find out <laughs> what the answer to that question is in just a second, not too long from here. But, uh, yeah, then obviously a refrain to the Evening Prophet on page 234. Uh, I'll go ahead and let Chase go ahead and do that. Talking about the, the the Evening Prophet on 234 and close out this chapter and get into the next one. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna let you. Uh... <laughs> yeah, the the letter I guess that gets sent in reg- or the little note ski <laughs> that he sends later on, as far as those thoughts, <laughs> if that can be moved. But yeah, Slughorn is something else with the request. It's almost like he feels like. Correct me if I'm wrong. What do you think of this? Do you think he thinks he can get away with it because he was already there previously? Or just because he has some idea that so many people like him that it's like a pompousness? Like, he's going to just do this. Yeah, I think he just thinks that he's so well-liked that there's no reason they would tell him no. And then, like, apparently he just doesn't know Severus Snape. So (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. A little bit of that. Okay, so I guess, uh, so this is a pretty big chapter that we're going to go into as far as... Well, I was going to uh, have you read the rest of the chapter on this one. Actually, I'll, I'll just go ahead and do it. It's not gotcha. too much. I did, yeah, yeah, I so, step on your Yeah, toes, let me go ahead so and, like... and finish up chapter 11 and I'll let Chase get us through chapter 12. So, uh, the last thing I have here is just referring to the evening prophet. Uh, Harry says, anything new? Not really. Hermione had opened up the newspaper and was scanning the inside pages. Oh, look, your dad's in here, Ron. He's all right, she added quickly, for Ron had just turned around in alarm. Just as he's been to visit the Malfoy house. This second search of the Death Eaters residence does not seem to have yielded any results. Arthur Weasley, of the Office for the Detection and Compensation of Counterfeit Defensive Spells and Protective Objects, said this team had been acting upon a confidential tip-off. Yeah, mine, said Harry. I told my King's Cross about Malfoy and that thing he was trying to get at Borgen to fix. Well, if it's not at their house, he must have brought whatever it is to Hogwarts with him. But how can he have done that, Harry? Said Hermione, putting down the newspaper with a surprise look. We were all searched when we arrived, weren't we? Were you? Said Harry, taking it back. I wasn't. Oh, no, of course you weren't. I forgot you were late. Well, yeah, Phil ran over us with uh, secrecy sensors when we got into the entrance hall. Any dark object would have been found, so I know for a fact, because Crab had a shrunken head confiscated. So you see, Malfoy can't have brought in anything dangerous. Momentarily stimmied. Harry watched Ginny Weasley playing with Arnold the Pygmy Puff for a while before seeing a way around the objection. Someone sent it to him by Owl, then. His mother or someone. Owls are being checked, too, said Hermione. Fitch told us so when he was... Filch told us so when he was jabbing those secrecy sensors everywhere he could reach. Really stumped this time, Harry found nothing else to say. They did not seem to be any way Malfoy could have brought a dangerous or dark object into the school. He looked hopefully at Ron, who was sitting with his arm folded, staring over at Lavender Brown. Can you think of any way, Malfoy? Oh, drop it, Harry, said Ron. Listen, it's not my fault Slughorn invited Hermione and me to the stupid party. Neither of us want to go, you know, said Harry, fired up. Well, as I'm not invited to any parties, said Ron, getting to his feet again, I think I'll go to bed. Stomped off towards the door towards the boys' dormitory, leaving Harry and Hermione staring after him. Harry, said the new chaser, Demelza Robbins, appearing suddenly at his shoulder. I've got a message from you. From Professor Slughorn? Said Harry, sitting up hopefully. Uh, no, from Professor Snape, said Demelza. Harry's heart sank. 
He says, you're to come to his office at half past eight tonight to do your detention, no matter how many party invitations you receive. And he wanted you to know that you'll be sorting out rotten flubberworms from the good ones to use in potions. And he says, there's no need to bring protective gloves. (laughs) (laughs) Right, said Harry grimly. Thanks a lot, Demelza. And that will close us out for chapter 11. Some good things in there. That was more of like a a filler chapter because we got to learn about the Quidditch team and the trials and how Harry decided to who he was going to pick for each one. Uh, got a little bit more about Slughorn thinking he can bend the rules and get the kids what he what he wants to get them. Snape kind of doing Snape like stuff. Uh, Arthur acting on on Harry's thing. That was that first full circle moment. He acted on Harry's tip off and still couldn't find anything in the Malfoy uh, mansion there. And then also. The last one thing I'll do before I turn to Chase is we talk about the Hagrid situation. They've smoothed things over with him, which is good. Like There was a lot of animosity. they smoothed things over, but they do come to the realization once Hagrid discloses the information that Aragog's not doing well, and that's going to play a role later on. But at least Harry, Ron, and Hermione's relationship yeah. with Hagrid is not harmed or tainted. They're back on great terms. With that, I'll turn it over to Chase, and he'll go ahead and take us into our final chapter that we'll cover today. Yeah, man, Hagrid was doing some pouting though. Like he, he was, was, he was, yeah. Like they got, they walked over to that house and like, remember Harry was basically like, "I'll break down your door. <laughs> like I'll break this down if you don't open up right now, Hagrid." And then he, they open up the door and he's just sitting there. And it, I don't know, man. Like I thought that was just. Never saw Hagrid act like a child. And that's exactly what happened. Um, so, yeah, going into this one, and uh, this is a pretty detailed one to close us out, but uh, pretty cool because it, it leaves you on one of those massive uh, action-packed impact moments, but it definitely leaves you thinking, like, where is this going from here? So, uh, But what's cool is the school, you know, we talked about before, Going all the way back to the third year, they have these Hogsmeade trips, which are pretty awesome, and and get them like a break, get them out of the school. Um, and luckily, you know, this time uh, he didn't have to have anyone sign his paperwork. Might be bewitched if that would be the case. But uh, yeah, we'll go ahead and <laughs> dive on into it, man. Um, so silver and opals. So uh, where was Dumbledore, and what was he doing? He caught sight of the headmaster only twice over the next few weeks. He rarely appeared to appeared at meals anymore. And Harry was sure Hermione was right in thinking that he was leaving school four days at a time. Had Dumbledore forgotten the lessons he was supposed to be giving Harry? Dumbledore had said that the lessons were leading to something due to the prophecy. Harry had felt bolstered, confronted, and now he felt slightly abandoned. Halfway through October came, and their first trip of the term to Hogsmeade, uh, where their first trip of the term to Hogsmeade, Harry had wondered whether these trips would still be allowed, given the incre- increasingly tight security measures around the school, uh, but was pleased to know that they were going ahead. It was always good to get out of the castle grounds for a few hours. Harry woke up early the morning of the trip, which was pr- proving stormy and while away from away time until breakfast by reading the copy of advanced potion making he did not usually lie in bed reading his textbooks with that sort of behavior as ron rightly said 
was incident in anybody except Hermione, who was simply weird that way. Harry felt, however, that the Half-Blood Prince's copy of Advanced Potion Making hardly qualified as a textbook. The more Harry poured over the book, the more he realized how much he was in there. Not only the handy hints and shortcuts on potions were earning him such a glowing reputation with Slughorn, but also the imaginative little hexes, little jinxes and hexes scribbled in, scribbled in the margins, which Harry was sure, judging by the crossings out and revisions, that the prince had invented himself. Harry had already attempted a few of the prince's self-invented spells. There had been a hex that caused toenails to grow alarmingly fast. He had tried this on Crab in the quarter, which very inter- came with very entertaining results. A jinx that glued the tongue to the other roof of the mouth, which he had twice used, uh, to general applause on an unsuspecting Argus Filch. And perhaps, most useful of all, Muf- uh, Mufli... How do I say it? Mufiato. Muffliato. 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 Gotcha. Yeah, sorry. Okay, I'm about to go blind reading all of it. Yeah, Muffliato. Gotcha. So the Muffliato spell that filled the ears of anyone nearby with an unidentified buzzing so that lengthy conversation could be held without being overheard. The only person who did not find these charms amusing was Hermione, who maintained a rigidly disappearing, disapproving expression throughout and refused to talk at all if Harry had used the Muffliato spell on anyone in the vicinity. Sitting up in bed, Harry turned the book sideways so as to examine more closely the scribbled instructions for a spell that seemed to have caused the prince some trouble. There were many crossing outs, altercations, but finally, crammed into a corner of the page, the scribble levy corpus, NVBL. While the wind sleep pounded relentlessly on the windows and Neville snored loudly, Harry stared at the letters in the brackets, NVBL. That had to mean nonverbal. Harry rather doubted he would be able to bring off this particular spell he was still having difficulty with nonverbal spells, something Snape had been quick to comment on in every DADA class. On the other hand, the prince had proved a much more effective teacher than Snape so far. Pointing his wand at nothing in particular, he gave it an upward flick and said, Levios corpus! inside his head. Ah! There was a flash of light and the room was full of voices. Everyone had woken up as Ron let out a yell. Harry sent advanced potion-making, flying in panic. Ron was dangling upside down in midair as though an invisible hook had hoisted him by the ankle. Sorry, yelled Harry, as Dean and Seamus roared with laughter, and Neville picked himself up from the floor, having fallen out in bed. Hang on, I'll let you down. He groped for the potion book and riffled through it in panic, trying to find the right page. At last, he located and deciphered one cramp. Uh, word underneath the spell. Praying that this was the counter jinx, Harry thought, Libra corpus, with all his might. There was another flash of light. Ron fell into a heap on the mattress. Sorry, repeated Harry weakly, while Dean and Seamus continued to roar with laughter. Tomorrow, said Ron in a muffled voice, I shall see, I shall see 
I'd rather you set the alarm clock for tomorrow. By the time they had got dressed and putting themselves out with the several of Miss Weasley's hand-knitted sweaters and carrying cloaks, scarves, and gloves, Ron's shock had subsided and he had decided that Harry's new spell was highly amusing. So amusing, in fact, that he had lost no time in regaling Hermione with the story as they sat down for breakfast. And then there was another flash, and I landed on the bed again, Ron grinned, helping himself to sausages. Hermione had not cracked a smile during the antidote, and now turned an expression of wintry disapproval upon Harry. Was the spell by any chance another one from your potion of your books? She asked. Harry frowned at her. Always jump to the worst conclusion, don't you? Wasn't I? Well, yeah, it was, but so what? So, you just decided to try out an unknown handwritten incantation and see what would happen. Why does it matter if it's handwritten, said Harry, preferring not to answer the rest of the question. Because it probably not only ministry magic approved, said Hermione, and also she added as Harry and Ron rolled their eyes because of staring to think this prince character was a bit dodgy. Both Harry and Ron shouted her down at once. It was a laugh, said Ron, unpending a ketchup bottle over the sausages. Just a laugh, Hermione, that's all. Dangling people upside down by the ankles, said Hermione. Who put their time and energy into making up the spell like that? Fred and George, said Ron, <laughs> shrugging. It's their kind of thing. And er, what my dad, said Harry, he had only just remembered. What? said Ron and Hermione together. But dad used the spell. And Harry, I Lupin told me. This last part was not true. In fact, Harry had seen his father use the spell on Snape. But he had never told Ron and Hermione about that particular excursion into the Pensieve. Now, however, a wonderful possibility occurred to him. Could the half-blood prince possibly be? Maybe your dad did use it, Harry, said Hermione. But he's not the only one. We've seen a whole bunch of people use it, in case you've forgotten. Dangling people in midair, making them float along asleep helpless, Harry stared at her with a sinking feeling he too remembered the behavior of the Death Eaters at the Quidditch World Cup. Ron came to his aid. That was different, he said robustly. There was abs uh, they were abs abusing it. Harry and his dad were just having a laugh. You don't like the prince, Hermione? He added, pointing a sausage to her sternly. Because he's better than you at potions? It's got nothing to do with that, said Hermione, her cheeks reddening. I just think it's very possible to start performing spells when you don't even know what they're for. Stop talking about the prince, as if it's a title. I bet it's just a stupid nickname. And it doesn't seem as though he was very a nice person to me. I don't see where you're getting that from, said Harry heatedly. If he'd been a building, if he had been a budding, Death Eater wouldn't have been boasting about being half-blood, would he? Even as he said it, Harry remembered that his father had been a pure-blood, but he pushed the thought out of his mind, and he would worry about that later. The Death Eaters can't all be purebloods. There aren't enough. Pureblood wizards left, said Hermione stubbornly. I expect most of them are half-bloods pretending to, to be pure. It's only muggle-borns they hate. 
they'd be quite happy to let you and Ron join up. There's no way they'd let me be a Death Eater, said Ron, indignantly, a bit of sausage flying off his fork, and he was now brandishing at Hermione and hitting Ernie McMillan on the head. My whole family are blood traitors. That's as bad as a Muggleborns to Death Eaters. And they'd love to have me, <laughs> said Harry sarcastically. We'd be best pals if they'd keep me trying to, uh, if they'd keep trying to do me in. This made Ron laugh. Even Hermione gave a grudging smile. And distraction arrived in, shape, in the shape of Jenny. Hey, Harry, I'm supposed to give you this. It was a scroll of parchment with Harry's name written upon it in familiar thin, slanting writing. Thanks, Jenny. It's Dumbledore's next lesson, Harry told Ron and Hermione, pulling open the park parchment and quickly reading its contents. Monday evening. He felt suddenly light and happy. Want to join us in Hogsmeade, Jenny? He asked. I'm going with Jean, with Dean. Might see you later? She replied, waving as them as she left. Filch was standing at the oak front doors as usual, checking off the names of people who had permission to go into Hogsmeade. The process took even longer than normal, as Filch was triple-checking everybody with his secrecy stone. Secrecy what? sensor, my guy. It's secrecy stone. sensor. Sorry, I'm reading too fast. Here. Yeah, the, the glasses. The I, don't, I don't see the glasses with I you. I know, man. Those glasses, man. <laughs> yeah, Once it gets late at night last, <laughs> like this, I get blinded by the light. Blinded like by the light. <laughs> oh, I was thinking, do, you want, do you want me to get you up until the point? <laughs> yeah. No, did did you want me to get you up into the point of like uh, you know, where Katie Bell runs in? Did you want me to kind of take you from there? Or? Like I, I, I can. It's only about five pages. You want me to just run through these five pages for you so you can yeah, take the cool. Katie Bell yeah, thing? Yeah, that's fine with me. Yeah, that's good. Just yeah, figure my my eyes don't need the glasses, so I might be able to help you out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you're good, man. No worries. Oh, you're good. Solid. Awesome. Let me go ahead and get us through these five pages before I give it to Chase at two forty-eight. So. What does it matter for smuggling dark stuff out, demanded Ron, eyeing the long, thin secrecy sensor with apprehension. Surely you ought to be checking for what we're bringing back in. His cheek earned him an extra few jabs with the sensor, and he was still wincing when he stepped out into the wind in the sleet. The walk into Hogsmeade was not enjoyable. Harry wrapped his scarf over his lower face and exposed part. Soon both felt raw and numb. The road to the village was full of students spent double against the bitter wind. More than once, Harry wondered whether they might not have been, have been a better time in the warm common room, and when they finally reached Hogsmeade and saw that jo Zonko's joke shop had been boarded up, Harry took it as confirmation that this trip was not destined to be fun. Ron pointed with a thickly gloved hand towards Honeydukes, which was mercilessly, mercifully opened, and Harry and Hermione staggered in his wake into the crowded shop. Thank God, shivered Ron as they were enveloped by warm, toffee-scented air. Let's stay here all afternoon. Harry, my boy, said a booming voice from behind them. <laughs> Oh no, muttered Harry. The three of them turned to see Professor Slughorn, who was wearing an enormous furry hat and overcoat with matching fur collar, clutching at the bag of crystal pineapple, crystallized pineapple and occupying the last quarter of the shop. Harry, that's three of my little suppers you missed now, said Slughorn, poking him genially in the chest. It won't do, my boy. I'm determined to have you. Miss Granger loves them, don't you? Yes, said Hermione helplessly. They're really... So why don't you come along, Harry, demanded Slughorn. Well... I've had Quidditch practice, Professor, said Harry, who had indeed been scheduling practices every time Slughorn had sent him a little violet ribbon adorned invitation. This strategy meant that Ron was not left out, and they usually had a laugh with Ginny imagining Hermione shut up with Cormac McLaggen and Blaise Zabini. 
Well, I certainly expect you to win your first match after all this hard work, said Slughorn, but a little recreation never hurt anybody. Now, how about Monday night? You can't possibly want to practice in this weather. Camp Professor, I got an appointment with Professor Dumbledore that evening. Unlucky again, cried Slughorn dramatically. Ah, well, you can't evade me forever, Harry. And with a regal wave, he waddled out of the shop, taking as little notice of Ron as though he had been a display of cockroach clusters. I can't believe you rig it all of another one, Sir Hermione, shaking her head. They're really not that bad, you know. They're even quite fun sometimes. But then she caught sight of Ron's expression. Oh, look, they've got deluxe sugar quills. Those would last hours. Glad that Hermione had changed the subject. Harry showed much more interest in the new extra-large sugar quills than he normally would have done. But Ron continued to look moody and really shrugged when Hermione asked him where he wanted to go next. Let's go with three broomsticks, said Harry. It'll be warm. They bundled their scarves back over their faces and left the sweet shop. The bitter wind was like knives to the face after sugary warmth of Honeydukes. The street was not very busy. Nobody was lingering to chat, just hurrying towards their destinations. The exceptions were two men in a little ahead of them, standing just outside the three broomsticks. One was very tall and thin, squinting through his rain-washed glasses. Harry recognized the barman who worked at the other Hogsmeade pub, the Hogshead. As Harry, Ron, and Hermione drew closer, the barman drew his cloak more tightly around his neck and walked away, leaving the shorter man to fumble with something in his arms. They were barely feet from him when Mundungus realized who the man when Harry realized who the man was. Mundungus! The squat, bandy legged man with long, straggly ginger hair jumped up and dropped an ancient suitcase which burst open, releasing what looked like the entire contents of a junk shop window. Oh, hello, Harry, said Mundungus Fletcher with a most unconvincing stab at airness. Well, don't let me keep you. He began scrambling on the ground to retrieve contents of a suitcase with every appearance of a man eager to be gone. Are you selling this stuff? asked Harry, watching Mundungus grab an assortment of grubby-looking objects from the ground. Oh, well, uh, gotta scrape a living, said Mundungus. Give me that! Ron had stopped and picked up something silver. Hang on. This looks familiar. Thank you, said Mundungus, snatching the gobble out of Ron's hand, stuffing it back into the case. Well, I'll see you all. Ouch! Harry had pinned Mundungus against the wall of the pub by his throat. Holding him fast with one hand, he pulled out his wand. Harry! squealed Hermione. You took that from Sirius's house, said Harry, who was almost nose-to-nose with Mundungus and was breathing in an unpleasant, unpleasant smell of tobacco and spirits. That had the black family crest on it. I no, what? spluttered Mundungus, who was slowly returning purple. What did you do? Go back the night he died, strip the place? snarled Harry. I no, give it to me. Harry, you mustn't! shrieked Hermione as Mundungus started to turn blue. There was a bang, and Harry felt his hands fly off Mundungus's throat. Gasping and spluttering, Mundungus seized his... his fallen case and crack he disapparated. Harry swore at the top of his voice, spinning on the spot to see where Mundungus had gone. Come back, you thieving! There's no point, Harry. Tonks had appeared out of nowhere, her mousy hair wet with sleep. Mundungus will probably be in London by now. There's no point yelling. He's nicked serious stuff. Nicked it! Yes, but still, said Tonks, who seemed perfectly untroubled by this piece of information. You should get out of the cold. She watched him go through the door with the three broomsticks. The moment he was inside, Harry burst out. He was nicking Sirius' stuff! I know, Harry, but please don't shout. People are staring, whispered Hermione. Go and sit down. I'll get you a drink. Harry was still fuming when Hermione returned to the table a few minutes later, holding three bottles of butterbeer. Can't they order Controlman Dungus? Harry demanded of the other two in a furious whisper. Can't they at least stop him stealing everything that's not fixed down when he's at headquarters? Shh, said Hermione desperately, looking around to make sure nobody was listening. There were a couple of warlocks sitting close by who were staring at Harry with great interest, and Zabini, who was lolling against a pillar not far away. 
Harry, I'd be annoyed too. I know it's your things he's stealing. Harry gagged on his butter, but Harry momentarily forgotten that he owned number 12 Grimald Place. Yeah, it's my stuff. No wonder he wasn't pleased to see me. Well, I'm going to tell Dumbledore what's going on. He's the only one who scares Mundungus. Good idea, whispered Hermione, clearly pleased that Harry was calming down. Ron, what are you staring at? Nothing, said Ron hastily, looking away from the bar. But Harry knew that he was trying to catch the eye of the curvy, attractive barmaid, Madame Rosemerta, for whom he had long nursed a soft spot. I expect nothing is getting the bat getting more fire whiskey, said Hermione wappishly. Ron ignored this jibe, sipping his drink in what evidently considered to be a dignified silence, and Harry was thinking about Sirius and how he hated those silver goblets anyways. Hermione drummed her finger on the table, her eyes flicked between Ron and, and the bar, and the moment Harry drained the last drops of his bottle, she said, Shall we call it a day and go back to the school then? And that is where I'll leave it for Chase to kind of take back up right here. <laughs> And he'll get us through the rest of that chapter. Yeah, man. Now that I can see that I moved it into the light. Blinded by the light. <laughs> That's for sure. Okay, so it says, So the other two nodded. It had not been a fun trip, and the weather was getting worse the longer they, sp- the longer they stayed. Once again, they drew their cloaks tightly around them, rearranged their scars, pulled on their gloves, then followed Katie Bell and a friend out the pub and back up the high street. Harry's thoughts strayed to Jenny as they trudged up the road to Hogwarts through the frozen slush. They had not met up with her undoubtedly, thought Harry, because she and Dean were cozily closeted in Madame Puttyfoot's tea shop. That haunt of happy couples, scowling, he bowed his head against the swirling sleet and trudged on. It was a little while before Harry became aware of the voices of Katie Bell and her friend, which were being carried back to him on the wind, had become shriller and louder. Harry squinted at their indistinct uh, figures. The two girls were having an argument about something Katie was holding in her hand. It's nothing to do with you, Leanne, Harry heard Katie say. They rounded a corner in the lane street, coming thick and fast, blurring Harry's glasses. Just as he raised a glove, a hand to wipe them, Leanne made to grab a hold of the package Katie was holding. Katie tugged it back, and the package fell to the ground. At once, Katie rose into the air, not as Ron had done, suspended comically by the ankle, but gracefully, her arms outstretched as though she was about to fly. Yet there was something wrong, something eerie. Her hair was whipped around her her by the fierce wind, but her eyes were closed and her face was quite empty of expression. Harry, Ron, and Hermione and Leanne had all halted to their tracks watching. Then six feet above the ground, Katie let out a terrible scream. Her eyes flew open, but whatever she could see or whatever she was feeling was clearly causing her terrible anguish. She screamed and screamed. Leanne started to scream too and seized Katie's ankles. Trying to tuck her back to the ground, Harry, Ron, and Hermione rushed forward to help, but even as they grabbed Katie's legs, she fell on top of them. Harry, Ron, Harry and Ron managed to catch her, but she was writhing so, so much they could, bear, they could hardly hold her. Instead, they lowered her to the ground, where she thrashed and screamed, apparently unable to recognize any of them. Harry looked around. The landscape seemed deserted. Stay there, he shouted at the other two over the howling wind. I'm going for help. He began to sprint towards the school. He had never seen anyone behave as Katie has just behaved and could not think what had caused it. 
He hurled around a bend in the lane and collided with what seemed to be an enormous bear on its hind legs. Hagrid, he panted, disentangling himself from the hedge row into which he had fallen. Harry, said Hagrid, who had sleet trapped in his eyebrows and beard and was wearing his great shaggy bear, beaver skin coat. Just a been visiting Grop. He's coming on uh, so well you wouldn't. Hagrid, someone's hurt back there or cursed or something. What? said Hagrid, bending lower to the ear, what Harry was to say, saying over the raging wind. Someone's been cursed, bellowed Harry. Cursed? Who's been cursed? Not Ron, Hermione. No, it's not them. It's Katie Bell. This way. Together they ran along the lane. It took them no time to find the little group of people around Katie who was still writhing and screaming on the ground. Ron, Hermione, and Leanne were all trying to quiet her. Get back, shouted Hagrid. Let me see her. Something's happening to her, sobbed Leanne. I don't know. What? Hagrid stared at Katie for a second, then without a word bent down, scooped her up into his arms and ran off towards the castle with her. Within seconds, Katie's piercing screams had died away, and the only sound was the roar of the wind. Hermione hurried over to Katie's wailing friend and put an arm around her. It's Leanne, isn't it? The girl nodded. Did it just happen all of a sudden, or... It was when that package tore, sobbed Leanne, pointing at now sodden brown paper package on the ground, which had split open to reveal a greenish glitter. Ron bent down, his hand outstretched, but Harry seized his arm and pulled it back. Don't touch it! He crouched down. An ornate opal necklace was visible, poking out of the paper. I've seen that before, said Harry, staring at the thing. It was on display in Borgen and Burke's ages ago the label said it was cursed katie must have touched it he looked up at leanne who had stared to shake uncomfortably how did katie get a hold of this well that's why we were arguing she came back from the bathroom and the three broomsticks holding it said it was a surprise from somebody at hogwarts and she had to deliver it she looked all funny when she said it oh 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 no i bet she'd been in in imperious and i didn't realize leanne shook and renewed sobs hermione patted her shoulder gently she didn't say who'd given it to her leanne no she wouldn't tell me and i said she was being stupid and not to take it up to school but she just wouldn't listen and and then i tried to grab it from her and and leanne let out a wail of despair we better get up to the school said hermione her arm still around leanne We'll be able to find out how she is. Come on. Harry hesitated for a moment, then pulled a, pulled a scarf around his face and ignoring Ron's gasp, carefully covered the necklace in it and picked it up. We'll need to show this to Madame Pomfrey, he said. As they followed Hermione and Leanne up the road, Harry was thinking furiously. They had just entered the grounds when he spoke unable to keep his thoughts to himself any longer. Malfoy knows about the necklace, it was in the case at Borgen and Burke's four years ago. I saw him having a good look at it when I was hiding from his dad, from him and his dad. This is what he was buying that day when I, when we followed him. He remembered it and went back for it. I don't, I don't know, Harry said Ron hesitantly. Loads of people go to Borgen and Burke's, and didn't that girl say Katie got it in a girl's bathroom? She said she came back from the bathroom with it and she didn't necessarily get it in the bathroom itself. McGonagall, 
said Ron warningly. Harry looked up. Sure enough, Professor McGonagall was hurrying down the stone steps through the swirling sleet to meet them. Haggard says your four saw what happened to Katie Bell. Upstairs to my office at once. What's your holding, Potter? It's that thing she touched, said Harry. Good lord, said Professor McGonagall, looking alarmed as she took the necklace from Harry. No, no, Filch, they're, they're with me, she added hastily as Filch came shuffling eagerly across the entrance, Hall holding his secrecy sensor aloft. Take this necklace to Professor Snape at once, but be sure not to touch it. Keep it wrapped in that scarf. Harry and the others followed Professor McGonagall upstairs and into her office. The sleet-spattered windows were rattling in their flames, and the room was chilly despite the fire crackling in the grate. Professor McGonagall closed the door and swept around her desk to face Harry, Ron, and Hermione, and she and the still sobbing Leanne. Well, she said sharply, what happened? Haltingly, and with many pauses while she attempted to control her crying, Leanne told Professor McGonagall how Katie had gone to the bathroom in the three broomsticks and returned holding the unmarked package. How Katie had seemed a little odd, and how they had argued about the advisability of agreeing to deliver unknown objects, the argument culminating in the tussle over the parcel which tore open. At this point, Leanne was so overcome, there was no getting another word out of her. All right, said Professor McGonagall, not unkindly. Go up to the hospital wing, please, Leanne, and get Madame Pomfrey to give you something for shock. When she had left the room, Professor McGonagall turned back to Harry, Ron, and Hermione. What happened when Katie touched that necklace? She rose up in the air, said Harry, before either Ron or Hermione could speak, and then began to scream and collapsed. Professor, can I see Professor Dumbledore, please? The headmaster is away until Monday, Potter said Professor McGonagall, looking surprised. Away? Harry repeated angrily. Yes, Potter, away, said Professor McGonagall tartly. But anything you have to say about this horrible business can be said to me, I'm sure. For a split second, Harry hesitated. Professor McGonagall did not invite confidences. Dumbledore, though in many ways more intimidating, still seemed less likely to scorn a theory. However wild... This was a life-and-death matter, though, and no moment to worry about being laughed at. I think Drinko Malfoy gave Katie that necklace, Professor. On one side of him, Ron rubbed his nose in apparent embarrassment. On another, Hermione shuffled her feet as though quite keen to put a bit of distance between herself and Harry. That is a very serious accusation, Potter, said Professor McGonagall. After a shocked pause. Do you have any proof? No, said Harry, but... And he told her about following Malfoy to Borgen and Burks in the conversation they had overheard between him and Mr. Borgen. When he had finished speaking, Professor McGonagall looked slightly confused. Malfoy took something to Borgen and Burks for repair. No, Professor. He just wanted Borgen to tell him how to mend something he didn't have it with him but that's not the point the thing is is that he bought something at the time and i think it was that necklace so you saw malfoy leaving the shop with a similar package no professor he told borgen to keep it up in the shop for him but harry hermione interrupted 
Borgen asked him if he wanted to take it with him, and Malfoy said no. Because he didn't want to touch it, obviously, said Harry angrily. What he actually said was, how would I look carrying that down the street, said Hermione. Well, he would look a bit of a a prat carrying a necklace, interjected Ron. Oh, Ron, said Hermione uh, despairingly. It would be all wrapped up so he wouldn't have to touch it and quite easily to hide inside a cloak inside a cloak so nobody would see it. I think whatever he reserved at Borgen and Burke's was noisy and bulky, something he knew would draw attention to him if he carried it down the street, and in any case, she pressed on loudly before Harry could interrupt. I asked Borgen about the necklace, do you don't you remember? When I went in to try to find out what Malfoy had asked him to keep, I saw it there. And Borgen just told me the price. He didn't say it was already sold or anything. Well, you were being really obvious. He realized what you were up to within five, when a, about five seconds. Of course he wasn't going to tell you. Anyways, Malfoy could have sent off for it since. That's enough, said Professor McGonagall. As Hermione opened her mouth to retort, looking furious. Potter, I appreciate you telling me this, but we cannot point the finger of blame at Mr. Malfoy purely because he visited the shop where the necklace might have been purchased. The same is probably true true of hundreds of people. That's what I said, muttered Ron. And in any case, we have put stringent security measures in place this year. I do not believe that necklace can possibly have entered the school without our knowledge. But And what is more, said Professor McGonagall, with an air of awful finality, Mr. Malfoy was not in Hogsmeade today. Harry gaped at her, deflating. How do you know, Professor? Because he was doing detention with me. He has now failed to complete his transfiguration homework twice in a row, so thank you for telling me your suspicions, Potter, she said as she marched past them. But I need to go up to the hospital wing now to check on Katie Bell. Good day to you all. She held open the office door. They had no choice but to file past her without any, without another word. Harry was angry with the other two for siding with McGonagall. Nevertheless, he felt compelled to join in only to join in once they started discussing what had happened. So who do you reckon Katie was supposed to give the necklace to? Asked Ron. As they climbed the stairs in the common room. Goodness only knows, said Hermione. But whoever it was has had a narrow escape. No one could have opened that package without touching the necklace. It could have been it could have been meant for loads of people, said Harry. Dumbledore, the Death Eaters, would love to get rid of him. He must be one of their top targets for Slughorn. Dumbledore reckons Voldemort really wanted him. And they can't be pleased that he sided with Dumbledore or or you, said Hermione, looking troubled. Couldn't have been, said Harry, or Katie would have just turned around in the line in the lane and given it to me, wouldn't she? I was behind her all the way out there, out to the three broomsticks. It would have made much worse much it would have made much more sense to deliver the parcel outside Hogwarts, what with Filch searching everyone who goes in and out. I wonder why Malfoy told her to take it into the castle. Harry, Malfoy Malfoy wasn't in Hogsmeade, 
said Hermione, actually stamping her foot in frustration. You must have used an accomplice then, said Harry. Crab or Goyle? Or come to think of it, another Death Eater. He'll have loads better cronies than Crab and Goyle, now he's joined up. Ron and Hermione exchanged looks that plainly said there's no point in arguing with him. Dillagrout, said Hermione firmly as they reached the fat lady. The portrait swung open to admit them to the common room. It was a quite full and smelled of damp clothing. Many people seemed to have returned from Hogsmeade early because of the bad weather. There was no buzz of fear or speculation, however. Clearly the news of Katie's fate had not yet spread. It wasn't a very slick attack, really. When you stop and think about it, said Ron, casually turfing a first year out of one of the good armchairs by the fire so that he could sit down. The curse didn't even make it into the castle. Not what you call foolproof. You're right, said Hermione, prodding Ron out of the chair with her foot and offering it to the first year again. It wasn't very well thought out at all. But since, when has Malfoy been one of the world's greatest thinkers, asked Harry. Neither Ron nor Hermione answered him. Yeah, man, that's, uh, yeah, pretty deep stuff with that necklace there. So it, it draws up a lot of questions is what it does. But uh, one thing, you know, Harry's always had this problem where he just lashes out at things. And he doesn't kind of take a step back ever and kind of think through the situation on how he should approach things. He had that problem last year with Umbridge. And now you would think the one person he could talk to besides Dumbledore is McGonagall. And he's just lashing out over at Malfoy over here when he has really no proof. But um, yeah, it's definitely safe to say, you know, you got someone bewitching there is definitely intent behind this. Uh, so what else uh, do you think about this chapter, though? This one was big because it kind of goes into what I said last week, two weeks ago for our Differences episode, mm -hmm. when Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix movie used the curse Levicorpus, like that, that we finally got introduced to that in this chapter, in this book. So it's right. like, it really frustrates me that the Order of the Phoenix movie decided they were going to put that in. And not only did they put the curse in, it didn't even actually do what the curse is supposed to do in the book. So now that this, this is that point where I can say the this is what I was talking about, guys, if you listened yeah. a couple weeks ago. So that that's, again, a nonverbal spell. Uh, this is something that's going to be a big factor going forward is trying out self-made spells from this half-blood prince character in this book right so now that as of right now it's not too bad it was all fun and games but later in this novel it might not be all fun and games and then on top of it going a little bit further into hogsmeade it's just more of the the same in terms of harry not being happy that He's starting to be vocally upset. Not maybe not vocally. He's not saying it. Internally upset that Ginny is going out with Dean. Like he remember like saying like he scowled about like them being possibly at Maddie Puttifoot's like tea shop, and he was annoyed right. by that instead of meeting up with them. But anyways, yes, the whole Katie Bell thing is a huge issue as well because that cursed necklace that was brought up back in Chamber of Secrets when Harry accidentally went into Nocturnelli. 
Now, when I told you that was a foreshadow back then, we're coming here four years later into like a full circle moment. Pretty big stuff there, especially and then Chase finally, you know, when he does his next interesting facts episode, we can really bring up that Katie Bell situation with her and St. Mungo's because now it's finally happened. You know, that was such a big, <laughs> important uh, you know factor in here. And then just that curse necklace itself, obviously it wasn't meant for Katie Bell, it was meant for somebody else. So who the right. hell was it meant for and how the heck was, you know, they were they going to get it in there? And that's all questions that are to be answered. One thing I will bring up, and I think this is a pretty cool thing, if you'll do me a favor, guys, and t- turn to page um, 247 real quick. 247, there's that little uh, little passage about Mundungus and the bartender for mm-hmm. the Hogshead. Uh, that's something that is pretty important because what I think that did there, it says the exception was two little men ahead of them standing just outside the three broomsticks. One was very tall and thin, squinting through his rain-washed glasses. Harry recognized a barman who worked in the other Hogshead, Hogsmeade pub, the Hogshead. As Harry and Ron drew close, the barman drew his coat more tightly around his neck and walked away, leaving the short man to fumble with something in his arms. Well, first off, with the interesting facts that you told us, I thought that you know the bartender, you know the man, the man who owned that bar, and Mundungus did not get along. So what the heck were they seen doing together? Then it made me think a little bit more. There was something that that I'm not going to say that the guy's name. The guy who owns the Hogshead ends up receiving something that comes into play later into Deathly Hallows. He has something. I wonder if this is that moment where he received it. It could possibly be. So that's the stuff that I saw. But it was a great, great, uh, great chapter and really good place to kind of stop and and take it from there with, I guess, you know, our plot holes and our interesting facts before we let him go, man. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah, what plot holes did you have for this one? What I was talking about first, we'll find this back on page 175, is uh, why was it that Snape required an O for an owl for his you know, students to go on and continue potions? But to continue on to Newt for defense against the dark arts, he only would, he would accept an E for them to continue on with their defense against the dark arts owl. I don't get that. Because that's the whole reason why Harry was able to take potions is because Slughorn changed the rules. He's like, oh, no, Snape needed an O. All I need is an E. You guys can come take my new class. Why was it not the same for Defense Against the Dark Arts but in reverse for Snape where, you know, like, well, no, I require an O for you to take Defense Against the Dark Arts. Because if he, if he required an O for them to take Defense Against the Dark Arts, both Hermione and Ron wouldn't be able to take it. So it's right. like... Why did he switch his mindset from you can only you can only have an O for me to teach you newts and potions? But I guess he's cool with an E in defense against the dark arts. Like what was that? I was thinking the exact same thing. Um, yeah, because what it really caters to is that the fact I guess like <laughs> instead of having standardized levels to where you can go as far as like go to the newts and all that stuff. It's like basically saying the professor or the teacher at this school like is who determines if you pass or fail. So you could technically, that's like making a dreadful, right? But if the teacher likes you, you still get to go because their standards are lower. They might pass everyone in the class with a failing grade at that point. So I definitely think... It's just weird. I wouldn't exactly say it's a plot hole, but I would say it's definitely well, something remember, that was this. This section yeah. is called Possible Plot Holes and Discrepancies. For me, it's more of a discrepancy than it's a plot hole. It's just yeah, something that we definitely should have got a little bit of 
Yeah, a little bit of clarification yeah. on why it was cool for one and not the other. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, no, 100%. Yeah. The next one I have is, we. I, I mentioned it quickly on page 206. Uh, Marvelo Gaunt refers to his daughter Merope as a squib. Yeah, Dumbledore says she was a witch and was able to practice his magic when he was gone. Well, I feel like Marvelo would know more about his daughter than Dumbledore would from a memory. So, like, if <laughs> yeah. she was a squib... You know, if she indeed was a squib, how was she doing magic? And, like, in fact, like, can you become more than a squib if you've got the correct, you know, environment to learn? And that's sort of a plot hole. It's just some questions I have. I wasn't really entirely sure about that. Did you think about that at all? Yeah, I thought about that, too. Um, Yeah, I mean, the problem with kind of that stuff is it's, like, there's no like definite answer on like why something is yeah. like it's just the you know like bill clinton it depends on what the definition of the word is actually is <laughs> i guess because i am right there with you on all that because those were actually the exact two um that i had because it's not yeah i mean you can get a lot of stretches out of it i can say a lot of discrepancies for that but yeah it's it's not something that's made clear that's for sure and then my final last one and this one for sure is a plot hole this doesn't really like there's not really any sort of question about it unless they change the rules but why were first years trying out for the quidditch team i thought they made an exception for harry back in year one did they change the rule entirely the first year rule entirely i thought it was just a one quick oh harry you're the exception we'll go ahead and bring you in your first year first years weren't even allowed to try out for the quidditch team in sorcerer's stone they weren't allowed to (laughs) But they oh, tried yeah. out. They tried out this year. Like, I, don't, I don't know, man. Just, yeah, I, I know that. That's funny too, because I remember reading that. <laughs> and it was, you know, and they tried to make like it, like to prove more of a point. Like this is why most of them were so bad. Like remember they said, you know, and uh, they were so surprised when their brooms went in the air. But then you go back to like Harry's year, he wasn't even allowed. To like even do anything Quidditch without like a professor there, like yeah. in front of him in the first year. So I just like had assumed they changed the rule because like it didn't make any sense. You, to me you can't just like change the rule on us without letting us know the rules have changed. It takes ten seconds yeah. to write a line, and they're like, "Well, with with the Harry Potter rule in effect, now first years can try out for Quidditch." It takes like ten yeah. fucking seconds to That's put all something need, in. Man. That's all. All it would have happened. Jeez. But that, those are the plot holes I found. Did you find any? Uh, just the ones you said. Okay. Yeah, those are the only ones I found. Awesome. Well, I'll so do my quick interesting fact, and you'll let you do yours, and we'll get the heck out of these guys' hair. But let me go <laughs> ahead and uh, put up the one I have. Mine, like Chase had mentioned, and he let me do that sentence. Mine is on Hector Dagworth Granger. All right, so he is either a purebud or a half-blood wizard. Uh, he, there's actually speculation that he could possibly be a distant relative, though it, of Hermione Granger, though that's unconfirmed. His occupation was a potioner, and uh, he is actually the founder of the society, the most extraordinary society of potioners. So, he is known to understand that no such elixir has been created to control and create love, as potion as love potions only induce powerful infatuations. Among other leading potioners, Hector Dagworth Granger doubted that it was possible to create a truly unbreakable and eternal affection. And so his magical abilities and skills, 
He was a highly accomplished and knowledgeable potioneers, and that was demonstrated by the fact that he was the founder of that society, the most extraordinary society of potioneers, showing his expertise in the field. And he had a particular and considerable knowledge on love potions and their effects specifically. And that's a little bit about our guy Hector Dagworth Granger. And that is my interesting fact for the day. That's cool. That's interesting, too. Um, as far as that he's, you know, big on love potions and all that as well, because it it's almost like shows as well, I guess, like Slughorn wasn't just thinking of like Granger, the last name, like it could have possibly related based on the like chapter he was thinking about. So it's just something to think about, like maybe he was actually trying to make a <laughs> maybe the way his mind works it makes you wonder if he was actually trying to make a decent point but he still just came off as like an ass so yeah no that's awesome man, yeah, man what really do you got good. for your interesting fact yeah man so i've been holding this one for a while actually you know <laughs> i was this close to sneaking it in before and then yeah jay nelly who's he convinced me otherwise <laughs> but uh so this was cool. This is back, remember, when we went to St. Mungo's. Uh, how do I say it for magical maladies? Maladies. maladies. Magical maladies. Magical ma- maladies. Gotcha. Good stuff. Yeah. All my ladies. No. Magical melodies. Maladies. Magical maladies. maladies. Yeah. We're not playing music either. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, Katie Bell. So a lot of people didn't know. She was actually a patient there. Um, and she was a patient on the first uh, ground floor is where it's at. So, you know, you have the ground floor and then you have the first floor and the second floor. Uh, on the ground floor of St. Mungo's Hospital, we've talked about kind of the levels there before. But so, yes, it's used as a welcome area. But the other part of the ground floor is for artifact accidents. Uh, patients actually kept on this floor uh, usually have incidents with artifact accidents uh, that are misfortunes, curses, or explosions. They actually even have a welcome guest unit in the reception area to help people find their way. Now, keep in mind, this isn't the thicker reward where they've lost their mind like permanently and don't understand, but usually because of the explosions or the curse or the accident that's there, they're very delirious and don't know what's going on. So they have specifically even hired a welcome unit right on that ground floor to actually take these patients and like guide them by the hand to the hospital bed. Well, uh, yeah, so she was a patient there um, and she gained entry, of course, uh, because she was actually known as one of the most famous patients that have been there. Uh, because of contact with the necklace that we just spoke of that you'll hear about later. Um, it is actually even said that was housed next to Katie Bell. Uh, so there were um, literally, there were two other patients that were housed next to her. Uh, one uh, got hit in a broom that um, crashed into a, like a fire or something. So it said it caused a major explosion. And there was a backfire uh, in an explosion with a, a wizarding broom, and that caught on fire. And that was the patient next to her. And then the other one was a, a guy casted a spell, and then the wand backfired, and it caused him to curse himself. And she was next to those two people there, but she was kept there for a really long time. And actually, 
she was kept closest to the actual welcome group that they hire just for that hospital because she didn't even know her name for weeks is what it's described which is wild so yeah man it's almost like wonders it makes you wonder if that thing was almost on the line of possession but we've seen like the difference here like possession is like in one's mind i guess this is just on top of that too when we find out what the curse what that necklace really is supposed to do like you're not supposed to survive it it's basically i'm not going to give anything away but like that's not giving anything really away like that curse i don't think it's really meant to possess anything i think like uh, she got very very lucky and we'll find out why but I, it's more of like <laughs> tries to end people more than anything i don't know if it's really possession yeah. but 100 yeah man i'll let you break us down though it's uh oh heck yeah, yeah. this has been an awesome one for sure man and one thing I will leave these guys with. So first, let me go ahead and, and tell what we always what we say what we always say around here, and give the big shout out to all our fans around the world, uh, not just the United States, but globally as well. Uh, we've been doing really well with our international viewers and listeners. So thank you guys so much. Uh, for those who haven't already, please go ahead and click like, subscribe to our channels. You can find us anywhere that you get your podcast. We've got great support from our host site in Podbean. You can find us anywhere. Like I said. We've got an amazing Instagram page at Official Ridiculous Patronus. We've got a fantastic Facebook page, uh, Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. So please go ahead and comment, leave a review, uh, send us all the correspondence you want. Uh, outside of that, I want to tease something a little bit. It's not set in stone, so I'm not promising this. But Chase and I are in correspondence with someone who creates the images for the chapters in the book. And we're possibly thinking about doing something a little special. I don't want to promise it. I don't want to tell you what it is. But we might have something cooking up for you guys here shortly when it comes to that. But that's for that day. Those are for future days. But for this day, do you know this has been another ridiculous production? Chase and Josh. Factor Fantasy. Signing Signing off. off.